Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. We're all here tonight to discuss the movie that proves there are actually some good things about the pandemic, like not having to go meet people and attend parties full of racists you don't want to talk to. That movie is Get Out. First off, here tonight to discuss the movie are my is my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Uh, really glad I don't live in the suburbs. Oh, boy, do I. Uh, I have a lot to say about the suburbs and why they are creepy and terrible. And I'm so glad that this movie delves into like why you should never go into Connecticut. <laughs> uh, next, one quarter of the Talking Comics podcast, fresh off determining the best comics of 2020. It's Aaron Amos. Aaron, how are you doing tonight? I am well. How are you? I am hanging in there. <laughs> I am recovering, I should say. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> uh, next up, educator, pop culture aficionado, and fellow North Carolinian, Emmanuel Lipscomb. Emmanuel, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. I'm super pumped to talk about this. It's one of my faves. Me too. And I think I have even more appreciation for it after uh, watching so many not quite as good horror movies. <laughs> and finally, film writer, director, and producer, Jay Joseph Jr. Jay, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing all right. And I got to say that this um, movie is very much my life story. Oh, no. That's concerning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I got to say that Connecticut plays quite a bit of a character in that life story. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Don't go to Connecticut. I had to go to Connecticut for work today. Got rear-ended on the highway. Don't go to Connecticut or you'll get into car crashes. That's the moral of this story. Well, guys, there is nothing that I like more than a piece of media whose title is Instructions to the Main Character. So let's talk about Get Out. Um, the real basics here before we start, uh, this movie is written and directed by Jordan Peele, who a lot of people will know from Key and Peele uh, and his, his other movie, Keanu, as well as you know, writing and directing this and Us and the new Twilight Zone, sort of being the showrunner on that. Um, it stars Daniel Kaluuya, who you might know from either Black Panther or Queen and Slim or a number of other things. Um, Allison Williams, who's in The Perfection, which is another great horror movie that hopefully we'll get to watch soon. Uh, Bradley Whitford, who's in a ton of stuff, well known for The West Wing, but on this podcast, well known as one of the guys we hate the most in Cabin in the Woods, which is a difficult thing to do in Cabin in the Woods. Um, and also Catherine Keener of Being John Malkovich and about a million other things. Uh, a lot of really prolific actors in this one. Um, it's about a, a guy named Chris, by, played by Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, who goes for a weekend in the country to meet his girlfriend's parents, but something is very wrong. I think the main conflict of the movie is trying to figure out if it's uh, just white people being weird uh, or if this is specifically sinister white people weirdness. And this, some really cool things about this film off the top is uh, this film is one of only a handful of horror films that's ever been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it's like this, The Exorcist, Jaws, Silence of the Lamb, Sixth Sense, and Black Swan. Um, Jordan Peele is also only the fourth black writer to be nominated for an Oscar for the best original screenplay, uh, along with uh, Suzanne DePass for uh, Lady Sings the Blues. 
uh, Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing and John Singleton for Boys in the Hood. Um, so he's, he's actually the only one of those to win it as well. Um, that is infuriating. Let's see. And then uh, as far as scare level guys, uh, is this spoopy as in oh, not scary, nope. spooky as in a little scary or straight up terrifying or just kind of existentially disconcerting? Uh, very scary. I think for me, it's spooky with a little bit of the existentially disconcerting. Yeah, there's a lot of spooky, a lot of atmospheric weirdness that you're not really sure what's going on. And it gets very quickly like very scary when it does get scary. But that's a relatively small portion of the movie, really. Because a lot of it is just building that suspense right up till, you know, till it's not suspense anymore. It's definitely in that psychological suspenseful atmospheric kind of horror which is honestly just as a viewer like it's my favorite for just like scare like you know the kind of movie where it might not be as overtly scary but it's i'm unsettled to the max the whole time no absolutely i, I like the feeling of like something bad's gonna happen and i don't know what but i, I don't feel at ease ever so there was a point I, at which i asked myself as i was watching in the film I was freaked out I was I like the word unsettled that was actually a very good descriptor but I asked myself would I have been this unsettled if I'd watched this in say 2017 you know as I am right now because there was a little bit of situational scare <laughs> scariness <laughs> that was going on there and I was sort of like how would I feel well, in this setting um and on that note I would say again? that I found it um very scary because that's always my default with white people <laughs> yeah I, I think i mean particularly right now you know as we're recording this we're a week out from a bunch of trump supporters storming the capitol so it is a particularly uh it's a particularly good time to be afraid of white people <laughs> um, and i'm saying that as as a white person uh it is it is not a not a good time to be particularly trusting white people Hell no. Um, and uh, as far as trigger warnings, I mean, obviously there are some things in here to warn people about. Um, they're not always the usual things. There's obviously some serious gaslighting and, uh, you know, sort of pervasive racism, but like real racism, not the kind that's usually in presented in movies about racism. Um, there's not a bunch of like white guys refusing to let them use the pool or something like, in, you know, uh, I don't think the N-word has ever dropped in this movie, but like, there's just really this pervasive sense of, of uncomfortable racism. I mean, it's definitely feels like realist. Like, just like, not suddenly kind of racism. Um, you know, even just being uh, a Jewish person whose partner is not Jewish, I like even just Bradley Whitford in Act One when he's saying... Like the, I would have voted for Obama a third time. Like I was, a, it was honestly something I'd never been quite able to put into words. And I was able to point to that and been like, this, this is how like my Judaism has been treated like by like family that, that well, even if just in the context of that act one, that well-meaning yet inherently othering behavior. Yeah. He said, my man, the first time I literally threw myself back <laughs> on the couch. I really did. I threw myself back. I'm like, what, what, what? Apple TV remote pause. What? <laughs> so, 
I had to sort of come back into it because I'm like, code switching is a thing for me already, mm-hmm. but then to see white people code switch, it's triggering. It's sort of like, um, okay, well, this is not going to go anywhere good and it's not going to go there quickly. I mean, I'm, I'm a weird person in this group to be the one saying this, but uh, being married to a black woman, like it is so obvious that this is written by a, a person of color and that these things are coming from like lived experience because like I've, I've been part of, I've been, you know, the third person in this situation before where it's just like, oh, oh no, oh no. <laughs> Why did that just happen? Um, you know, there is some, some light gore and some discussion of trauma. Um, not a ton of, you know, the, the things that we would generally warn about with uh, horror movies. No sexual assault, yay. Um, <laughs> I feel like we have to celebrate that when we do a horror movie that doesn't have even implied sexual assault now. Um, all right. God just, yeah, having sex with someone just gaslight, who's gaslighting the ever-loving shit out of you. Yeah. Um, so that's the end of our, our non-spoilery section. So if you haven't seen the movie and you do want to watch it before we get into spoiling everything about it, uh, th- this is your time to head out. We'll still be here when you come back. Or will we? <laughs> or will we? We will. That's how podcasts work. Unless <laughs> we just delete it after that. It just be just tell people they'll come back and it's just like blank space for an hour after that. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> just just I wonder how people. many people or if you could collect metrics of how many people waited and how long they waited for. That's a psychological experiment all on its own. <laughs> right. That'd be great. Um so guys, this film was filmed in 23 days. That's wild. What? Yeah. This, this whole thing was done in 23 days. They had to like change the location that it was supposed to be shot at originally. Uh, it was supposed to be sh- all done in LA. Uh, they ended up filming it in Alabama, like out in the woods. And so like, yeah, the whole thing, everything was, was done inside that 23 day filming, uh, which is, is just incredible to me. I mean, before we jump into the, the plot, did anybody have anything like off the top that they wanted to say about it? I guess just based off what you said, even if it was a last minute change, boy, do I think it was it to this movie's benefit to not be like set in LA or very clearly LA. I think even if it's Alabama, I think that kind of, it fit, at least maybe I'm biased being like from being from this area. It felt very, very Northeast New England. And I think it benefited to that setting over like a California type deal. When I feel like a lot of really good horror is about isolating your protagonist. And so I feel like if you set it in, you know, New York or you set it in LA, I'm thinking as a brown person, like, oh, there are tons of brown people in those cities. Like I can get help. But like, (laughs) as soon as you're like, you know, Northern Connecticut, rural, whatever, I'm like, I don't know anyone up there. There are no cousins to come help me. Like I I grew up in like, even in Southern Connecticut, I was thinking like, Oh yeah, shit. No, there's forest like everywhere. <laughs> like you can yeah. absolutely like anything can happen in those forests. Like fuck. I don't recall if they ever say that it is in Connecticut. I mean, they're they're clearly like leaving a city in the Northeast. I think they're specifically yeah, they're leaving New York. They they say somebody is, is from Brooklyn and uh, you know, he works for the TSA. So. Um, Long Island, Connecticut, the Hamptons, upstate New York, like that, 
where all the rich waspy people go for the summer once they like make all their money. Yeah. Even if they didn't say, I feel like Bradley Whitford is the clearest indicator of New York of the Northeast possible. My only thought based on what she told us is that I'm old enough to remember and it wasn't particularly amazing to shoot in only 23 days. Yeah. I I guess when you're not doing a ton of uh, CGI special effects and you're not, you know, having to to move people back and forth to a bunch of sound stages, probably much easier to to do that. Um, And I I think just the realism of most of this movie uh, probably played into making it easier to film. I mean, you look at the, like, the Blumhouse films, you know, like, the paranormal activity, and, like, Blumhouse, especially in the horror genre, has always benefited from being very nimble, like, small productions. They really, just as a company, they really know how to make the most out of a little. Oh, also, you got to look at it from what, what were we actually looking at? So, like I said earlier, I'm not the the biggest horror fan that's primarily because I don't like for those things to jump out from behind a tree or whatever to sort of freak me out and scare me but that wasn't really so much what was creating the tension for me you know for this movie really what was creating the tension was the experience identifying with the protagonist putting myself in that situation watching all those cars full of white people pull up and, and figuring out what that experience, knowing what that experience would be like, recognizing that I'm out in the woods and sort of that sense of helplessness. Um, and now that anything could happen, I joke all the time that, okay, they would never find my body out here, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sort of seeing that scenario played out, that really is what ratcheted up a lot of my anxiety. So then it just became a matter of just throwing, peppering things on top of that to sort of just push me over the edge, you know, in that experience. The Again, it wasn't always the the you know quick movements or the the, the jetting noises or or whatever. It was the the tension of what you know the, that experience, sort of being out there and being helpless, always undercutting every every scene that sort of got me going. Watching you know when that guy comes running out of the woods at him. <laughs> I'm literally like curling up in a fetal position on my couch, like okay, make it stop, make it stop. <laughs> Just make it stop. I, I, I think there's a sense of um, normalcy, actually, that the movie provides. So that it's like familiar to, even if you are from the city, you kind of grew up with uh, seeing all of those like cliches and tropes on television and knowing what it's like uh, from like Saved by the Bell and Power Rangers and all that, that kind of really suburban experience. But um, there are those of us that, you know, <clears throat> have been to Connecticut, have been to upstate New York and uh, there's something about that like I think all good horror really just kind of nails in on something that is uh, common to the human experience and really just draws the terror out from that and in addition to to all the pressure that the film adds in terms of the racism and in terms of uh, the existential dread that is just having something that feels a little familiar and perhaps even comfortable is what really um, wraps up the tension. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, I think for me, so much of what made it powerful and special is that I feel like I've been this dude, like I've been surrounded. I mean, I've attended predominantly white institutions my whole life, right? I went to school in the suburbs. I went to NC State. Like, and there's a time where you look around, you're like, oh, word, I'm the only one here. Cool, cool, cool. Like, and <laughs> and it, it can get awkward fast, right? Especially when there is that kind of 
is this nice? Is this weird? Right. That duality of, I can't tell if I'm weird or they weird. Is this because I'm black? Like it's, I don't know that there are a few horror movies like this one that I feel like I really not just empathize with the character, but like I've been in that situation. Like I, this is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I feel like another aspect of this movie is, and this mostly comes from the fact that we've been watching so many horror movies and you know we all, we talk about the final girl and how and uh, you know how much agency does she have like is she treated as a victim or as a hero? Uh, this feels like a you rare horror movie that has a lot to say about masculinity. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's very much like within the film too. It's not something you have to sort of surmise. Like there's a lot of people saying a lot of sometimes very awkward things about. Uh, about his masculinity, particularly in the movie. And going off of uh, you know what uh, what Jay and Emmanuel were saying, let's talk about this first scene because the first scene I think really keys in on that like, uh, this is somewhere <laughs> where people have been before. Like, you know, immediately when you see Lakeith Stanfield who plays Andre walking through, walking alone through the suburbs, he's talking on his phone. He, you know, says he, he doesn't really know where he's going. Why would they name these two streets in the suburbs the same kind of thing? You know, and, and he's just uh, trying to navigate his way along when, you know, there's this car that pulls up and sort of slows down, turns around and comes back to slow down and drive next to him. Boy, this is this is a real creepy scene, especially once uh, you hear the like Run Rabbit Run song playing out of it. There is. Which Jordan Peele is so good at recontextualizing songs. Like I would hear Run Rabbit Run and like, is this racist? But then like, in that scene, I'm like, oh, this is terrifying. Like, I, if you open your car door and that's what you're listening to, like, nothing good is about to happen. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think there's something <clears throat> in that scene that taps into something, especially, I don't want to say only if you're, if you're Black. I, I, I think for any person of color, and I think for women, um, you know, even for, even for children um, or... You know, there's something visceral about seeing a car pull up alongside you, stop, go in the opposite direction, pull up alongside you, because you never know what is going to happen. That all, that that's immediately cold for someone is starting is trying to start something, and uh, just as the person in the film got snatched, I think that's a top belt there for people because you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know if it is uh, starting to reference it going to be a weirdo. Uh, you know, who is, wants to get his rocks off or whatever. You don't know if it is going to be a white racist who wants to go ahead and string you up. And I think while just trying to protect yourself and be safe and uh, walking along out there, even if it's for the suburbs, you really have to be on your guard for that type of stuff. It, it, it reminds me of a, of a film I, I watched once at a film festival it was about this uh, white dude, you know, middle age. He basically hitchhiked across the country. And then after the film, me and my actress, my sister, and, uh, you know, my DP and my sister's boyfriend, who were both white, uh, we had all gone out for drinks after we started discussing the film. And for my DP, that was like one of his favorite films. And uh, uh, me, you know, our lead actress, who's also, um, you know, Caucasian, uh, we were like, that's that's not a scenario we can imagine. That's definitely something there that's for if you have that privilege of just walking relatively unguarded and knowing that you could get from one side of the United States to the other safely. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's wild even to me. I think, I don't know if it's a question of, you know, growing up, growing up poor or growing up with uh, paranoid parents or, you know, people of color in my family that like that idea to me does not seem plausible. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I certainly would not, would not be down for that. To me, I worry because if you're going across the country, eventually you're going to end up in Philadelphia and then you're just done <laughs> like that hitchhiking robot. <laughs> the robot made it robot made all the way through Canada, got all the way across America, landed in Philly. They fucking beat that thing's ass and, de- and like cut off its head in 10 minutes. <laughs> that is so true. That I, I had forgotten about the robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think like this, that robot. I'm not hitchhiking. I think this has one of the most like chilling moments in the movie. That's, a lot of it is accomplished by the camera work because like I think something Jordan Peele is good at doing in this movie, especially is saying like, all right, if I was in this situation, what would I do? And not making his characters make intentionally stupid mistakes. Um, Like everything feels at least emotionally plausible. Like in this scene, Lakeith Stanfield turns around and walks the other direction when he sees the guy, you know, driving next to him. He's like, I'm going to do whatever I got to, to avoid this guy. I'm going to, you know, go a different way. And when he steps out onto the street, and you can see that the car's door is open and there's nobody there. Like that moment is just like, oh no. <laughs> like I'm definitely I going, nope, 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 nope. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it's oh so good. I was like, just run, just run. I, I have to say, I was watching it and when that scene was happening, I, I because we everything about this was screaming, you know, the the drama is gonna be obviously behind race and interpretation, et cetera. I was watching it in my own mind saying, would this be as affecting or as scary for a white person? Would this be as affecting or scary? You know, having been in that situation, if, you know, if you're a white person walking down the street in the suburbs, are you, are you looking over your shoulder as much? Are you, you know, embracing that type of sort of innate, innate fear of being in that scenario, being in that sort of, um, you, you know, fish out of water scenario, or are you just, you know, I'm just walking in my neighborhood going from, you know, so-and-so's house to so-and-so's house and, you know, it's no big deal. So I was kind of wondering in my mind, how how is this perceived? Was that scene as shocking or as terrifying? Because I literally, the minute I seen those, I saw those uh, carefully groomed shrubs and I see him turn in the corner, I'm like, no, 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 you're, <laughs> you're not supposed to be there. No, no, no. <laughs> You need to go and get to where you're going, get to the car, get to the house and just go inside. Um, I, and that whole scenario was, no, that whole scenario was just sort of, hmm, is this me interpreting this a certain way or is this every, is this a universal thing? There's definitely that, that element of, uh, you know, belonging in a suburb, just the sense like I'm walking around, like if someone sees me, they're not going to wonder what I'm doing here. I'm not going to have to explain my presence here. There's absolutely that sense of being more, I'm not sure if more comfortable is the right way to say it, but there's that absolutely an an element and a major element that's definitely not there. Um, and then just in the way that like, it's still a very creepy, scary scene. I think anytime I'm like, if I'm alone and it's at night and there's nature around, I'm scared. <laughs> Dark plus woods plus me by myself, I'm not having a good time. 
and you know, and the thing, like I said earlier, I'm usually not the the horror movie guy, but in those instances, if it's a blood and gore horror movie, I can usually detach myself and sort of take myself out of that fear. I can say, okay, there's no guy with a hockey mask going to come flying out of but you know, out of the bushes with a machete and come after me. But when it's something that is literally something that you've probably seen play out on the news the day before, you're sort of like, I can't really take myself out of that situation because this could absolutely happen tomorrow. <laughs> so <laughs> when I walk my, outside, they're tired. They're good, but. When the car started following him, or like that to me was a very visceral moment just because, um, you know, my gender is like, I'm non-binary. So sometimes my presentation is a lot more uh, feminine and that brings with it, you know, just a certain amount of street harassment and unwanted attention. And I've definitely had the experience where it's, oh no, this person has stopped. Like, is this directed at me? oh no, they're changing directions. Like that fear of like, I'm just going about my business. This isn't for me. And then to realize like, no, you are a target. And like, and they are someone in a big moving car vehicle and you are on your legs. Like that is a very, that is a very scary moment. I just want to say really quick, what's interesting about uh, what Ben was saying earlier is I think that in terms of where you belong and feeling out of place, I think that goes both ways. I feel like there are scenes I've watched in movies where I'd seem like an urban environment, the ghetto, and I'd be like, you know, they're my people. I'm not scared of this. And I think that was very much a big thing in 80s horror movies where you would portray, you know, a scary urban environment that now Jason can chase you through or whatever, make in front of the city. So another thing Kayla does here is like he kind of inverts something that we've seen a lot of, like that there of the hood and that their blackness for us it's like that they're the suburbs the horrors of reality <laughs> yeah i still so think this... there should have been an ex- a whole extended sequence where jason just went to the m&m store <laughs> <laughs> just 20 minutes of jason in the m&m store be any worse than jason x i couldn't i couldn't stand to spend 20 minutes in the m&m store myself i'm not sure i could watch that so that's, uh, so this character uh, who we will learn later, his name is Andre. He gets, uh, you know, dragged off and, and put in the car. Um, and we go, we cut to the uh, credits over sort of the, the woods going by. We do have like a main theme in this movie. It's actually in Swahili, other than the word brother. And uh, according to the composer, Michael Abels, the, vo- the voices in the song represent the souls of black slaves and lynching victims trying to warn Chris to get away. Uh, the translation of the lyrics is brother run listen to the elders listen to the truth run away save yourself <laughs> oh damn <laughs> love it love it so much wow <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and then of course that of fades into uh Redbone, and and specifically they put a lot of emphasis on the the stay woke part of that song um i remember Redbone started when i was in the theater and like Redbone is one of those tracks i feel like as a brown person you could recognize in two notes. Like as soon as those opening notes hit, you're like, oh, I know this, this is Charles Gambino. And I remember thinking like, this movie is black, about to be black as hell. Like I'm so down. <laughs> I can't think of a single other movie that has started that way, right? Nothing is open with like Earth, Wind and Fire or like anything like that. But like, this is a clear directorial choice. Like, you know, it's just like, it's just like his other horror film, Us, which opens with I've Got Five on it. Oh, um, so good. Which is another one that it's like, first two notes, you're like, oh, I know what this is. 
I will say as I was going, I was like, okay, I'm starting to see a theme here. I think it was probably like 10 minutes in, I said to myself, okay, this is Jordan Peele saying, I'm going to make a movie about everything that will trigger a black man ever and put it into a, <laughs> into a horror film and craft it so beautifully. Because I, I remember writing my notes, I was like, okay, I had a major eye roll when she diminished his concern about her not telling her parents that he was black. And then I was like, all right, did she just say her dad voted for Obama? And I just kept going down the list. I'm like, the damn police officer. I'm like, why is she so bossy? I literally kept like writing down all of these things that was like, this is well, like every single thing that would annoy me. That was the thing, like when I was on the, the rewatch, all those things I took on such a me, I'm like, oh shit. She doesn't care about him smoking. She just wants to not like damage the goods. Like she wants, she doesn't want the police to see. I, I uh, he, she doesn't want the police to see his ID because she doesn't want a cop to have any record of him being right. in the area. But I think, I mean, getting ahead of ourselves, but like <clears throat> so much of that too, I think it's a character choice, right? Because it's she is not into him as like a complete whole person and because I'm thinking of my wife it, my wife wouldn't say stuff like that big like she's sorry my wife is not black but she is more aware of these things but as a person who is a fan of blackness as opposed to a fan of Chris like it's clear that those would be mistakes steps that she would make right you don't know any better because you don't care to learn like it's not about that for you yeah absolutely I think um it's Jordan Peele has said in several interviews that like he when he wrote this movie he didn't ever think it was going to get made he was just trying to make like a a movie that would like you know hit all the boxes for him like if he was watching a movie this is the stuff that he would find scary like this is these are the things that would really mess him up and uh, I think you know uh, like like Aaron was saying, like I think you can see so much of that in just these first couple minutes. You know, when we first meet Chris, he's he's getting ready. You know, his girlfriend Rose, this uh, you know his his white girlfriend Rose shows up to help him pack, and like immediately they start having this conversation where he's like, "Do they know I'm black?" And Rose is like, well, no, but like, that's not going to make a difference. Like my parents don't, don't care. My dad, you know, is going to tell you that he would vote for Obama a third time if he could. Um, all, all these things that pop back up later in this story too, but that are like immediate, like warning signs. <laughs> but, you know, he, it, it's clear that, you know, he, he loves this girl, is into this girl because like he puts up with like, just in the first few minutes, several things that, are just like, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't, that's, that's, that's the worst thing you could have just said. But yeah, but also it was a perfect way to put him in the vulnerable position, like right out of the gate. Um, yeah. You know, he's, he, he knows where he's going. He knows that they're not aware. He knows that he's got a, you know, because they're not aware, he, he's, he's got that anxiety behind, okay, how are they going to receive me when I get there? Who or are they going to be whack jobs? Are they going to be who knows what, you know, what, what's the situation I'm walking into? So already you're sort of, okay, maybe when I say you, I mean me, already I'm sort of like nervous and anxious about, okay, how is this going to go? Are they going to be, you know, full on like, you know, red state? Or are they going to be, you know, are they going to get it together and be a little bit too woke, you know, or, or whatever? And well, well, we saw how that 
turned out. <laughs> they, they were a perfect pairing of but it's, both. It's, it's also yeah. um, interesting because she's, like, throughout the entire movie, but from the very first moment we meet her, she's setting herself up as a constant ally to the point where um, when shit really goes down, he, you know, he legitimately believes that she's going to choose him over her family. Um, so, like, even the stuff, like, like she's definitely saying some pretty cringy shit uh, through their first meeting, but it's through the lens of, hey, I hate it as much as you do. Uh, we're just going to have to kind of weather the storm when they're, when they're. and, uh, you know, I think that's a, I, I, I always love it in my movies when from the very beginning, our, you know, core protagonists and core antagonists have like a really kind of strong dynamic setup. Yeah. yeah it was kind of for weird. all the, like, for all the, for all the issues with Rose, obviously like these, the two actors definitely have like a great dynamic. They have, chemistry it feels like they're in a relationship um down to like this whole you know they're driving and talking and like he's nervous and wants to have a cigarette and she like breaks it and throws it out the window first of all like how are you gonna put somebody in this stressful of a position and then like not let them like, give them a hard time about smoking like that that's, exactly that's <laughs> effed up yeah <laughs> So yeah, that was an interesting aspect of this for me because last week, well, as you, as Jeremy mentioned at the beginning, last week, I live in the District of Columbia. And so, as you know, the, the apocalypse began here last week. And so, you know, this, I had this scenario where a lot of my friends were calling to make sure that I was okay. Uh, and I have one friend who is a friend of 35 years. She's basically my sister and her kids call me Uncle Aaron. From day one, I've told her, you are the whitest person I've ever met in my entire life. You are the white, <laughs> like the absolute white, like the definition. And so they live in, I don't know if you're aware, they live in a town called Severna Park, Maryland, which is right outside of Annapolis. Again, the whitest. And she calls me and she says, do you want to come stay with us, you know, while everything is going on? And I'm asking her, why do you think it would be better for me to leave my neighborhood where I'm surrounded by allies and drive 25 miles to the whitest area <laughs> that I could find locally where I may not even make it to your house in this current climate. And so I still had that experience in the back of my head as I'm watching him go down this road, you know, and they're pulling up to the house and I'm like, nope, nope, plus side, it's a little I mean, too real. On the plus side, the pro none of those people were probably there because they were in the capital. So, you know, <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> The coast would have been clear. Yeah. You're probably yeah. right. Can I just say that I'm sorry that you live in the District of Columbia? And um, I'm not talking about last week. I mean, just in general. <laughs> you know what? It's It's been fun for most of the, the 24 years I've been here. <laughs> I only went to the shitter the last couple of days. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to deal. <laughs> um. Well, speaking of trying to deal, <laughs> um, he can't he can't have a cigarette, but he does get a chance to uh, call his buddy Rod, who's played by uh, Rel Howard. Um, Rod is and, amazing. Yeah, Rod is he he brings such a like a real touch of of comedy to this of like he feels a lot like Jordan Peele's usual sense of comedy. Um, and he does he does a great job. I guess I've been told a lot of his or I've I've seen that a lot of his stuff is. Uh, I guess improvised um but he does like uh 
a great job, like both lightening the mood, but also like setting up things that are going to happen. Like it's, I think it's kind of a joke in this movie that like to some extent Rod is like a, a conspiracy theorist that's, you know, just sure that like this white girl he's going, you know, home to meet her parents is, you know, is completely evil and going to do all these terrible things to him. And then he turns out to be right. Well, he, like, he, he turns out to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> I was going to say, like, so much of it is it's not insight, right? But it's being willing to ask those questions. In a lot of ways, he is Chris's lifeline that he's trying to, like, advise him. Like, I'm pretty sure he's the one that literally says, like, hey, like, you need to leave. Like, this is... None of, the, none of the things that you're describing are cool. Uh, but also, like, I don't know if you did this, but after watching this movie a couple of times, try and imagine sitting through all of these moments without Rod existing as a character. Like, then the tension is just way too high, right? Because you don't get those moments of relief and that comedy where it's like, okay, I can I can chill. Rod's cool. Like, you, you need Rod just so you don't, like, have a heart attack in this movie. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I, I mean, that might have sounded like a question but that's just my voice that was a statement like if Rod is not in this movie i would have been a nervous wreck yeah he's he's sort of this this pressure release and in a in an interesting way sort of a meta commentary for the movie because like a lot of this stuff is sort of improbable right like it is horror movie stuff you know the the eventual you know swapping of brains and things like that that's in there that's you know that's frankenstein stuff but like that you know it's actually happening and then you have rod who's like goes to the you know please later and is like this is what i think is happening and like it sounds so ridiculous that they laugh at him it kind of like it recognizes the like inherent insanity of you know what's going on in this movie while still like letting it happen he was also reassuring in the sense that, you know, it, it seemed like for me, whenever I got to the point where I was like, well, am I being overly paranoid? He would come in. I'm like, no, no, no. He agrees. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we're on the same page. Okay, fine. Keep calling. Yeah. And, and so they, uh, on this trip, they hit a deer with a car. It's sort of this very classic horror movie moment. And, you know, Chris uh, goes to check on the deer and, you know, sees it dying in the woods. Meanwhile, Rose, uh, is not interested in looking at this deer or checking on it or anything. Um, and this is a moment I think that'll end up like showing up later in the movie in a few different ways. Um, but we also get this this bit with the cop who uh, wants to see Chris's ID, even though Chris wasn't driving. And uh, Rose makes a big show of standing up to him, even though Chris is trying to just Chris is telling trying to tell her to be cool. Um, but she makes a show of uh, doing her whole uh, see your manager kind of bit. Um, and they... Karen's it. <laughs> yeah, what do you yeah. call a Karen that's an ally? That's another one of those scenes that like benefits from every watch because he has that line that's like, oh, I don't have a license, I have state ID. And like, I think a lesser director would have then done the flashback or explain why he doesn't have a driver's license but you get that detail much later when he starts exploring all of those you know traumas that he's had like yeah i that's something i admire incredibly about this movie that we're going to see a ton of in like the next scene is that like jordan peele is comfortable just like putting everything on screen and letting you figure it out if you figure it out and miss it if you don't 
which I, I think as a, as a writer is a thing that makes me incredibly nervous. But as a person watching the movie, I'm just like, oh, damn, like it all, <laughs> it's all there. Like it all fits together. There's a lot of things in this that, that are going to be like, that, that, you know, are touched on, but then are come back to. It's a very good lesson in uh, trusting your audience. But while we're on the scene with the cop, that's actually, I, I, I think, uh, one of the most um, affecting scenes in the movie for me, one of the scenes that's, that spoke to me the most, because I've been in uh, versions of that exact scenario where, um, you know, I would have a cop and I'd be hanging out uh, with someone of a fair complexion and she would uh, make a deal of whatever it was. And I was never exactly sure <clears throat> if it was uh, posturing or, you know, if she wanted to make herself out to be uh, almost like a white savior sorts or something. But it would always make me deeply uncomfortable. I say always. It's happened uh, with one girl I can think of at, at least twice. And it's made me deeply uncomfortable because she's there. Uh, kind of, you know, exerting her privilege, which I think in a, in a lot of ways, uh, this past, you know, year that thank God 2020 is gone, we have seen, you know, white women be kind of like instinctually aware of kind of their privilege and uh, whether they weaponize it or use it in other ways. But for me, as a black man, I feel as if things go south, the first thing the cop is going to do is he's going to target all of his aggression on me because he can. And no amount of allyship is going to have her kind of be the shield that she thinks she is in that moment. I believe there was one time when I was walking out of Target and the cop car kind of stopped and cut us off and honked at me and all that. And, you know, she threw a fit. There's another time we did something stupid. It was like drinking beers in, um, in Central Park and a cop had caught us. And, you know, she was essentially just going to write us up with a fine. But here goes my friend going off on her, all that. And I'm like, calm down. It's a $25 fine. I'd rather pay that than get my ass tased or worse, you know? It's all good. Um, to me, I feel like that's one of those experiences where you're like, uh, I, I, you feel as if it's, it's, it's a personal experience, but you also see this is kind of like some of the unspoken uh, 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 weirdness and code of America that's going on out there every day to see it in a big feature film like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's something that I'm I'm very much aware of. You know, like I said, having a, a wife who's a woman of color, that like I occasionally I feel like I want to jump in and do something, but like it's not it's not always my place to do it. And it's one of those things that I've had to learn to kind of like check with her and you know be be fucking cool about it for for a minute. Exactly, exactly. And thank you. <laughs> Well, also, like, imagine how much, I don't know, I just keep wondering about character traits. It's like, Rose's character would have been even more convincing if she said, hey, do you want to handle this? And then she goes off on the cop, as opposed to just immediately coming in at nine or ten, just doing whatever. Like, that, I think, sort of like Jay was saying, that makes me nervous. Like, you're making this into a thing it doesn't need to be. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, this is very much like, they say they, they've been together, what, three months at this point? And that feels like three months. Like... That's way too soon to have to talk to the cops. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, like the the next uh, the next scene we have is where we we get the introduction to the the house, the family, and uh, their their two servants there. Um, the mom and dad are you know Bradley Whitford and Catherine Keener. Um, 
who like can we talk about Bradley Whitford in this movie? Because oh, yeah. Sure. Everything about him is unsettling. And the worst oh, part yeah. for me is the mustache. Like, that is just <laughs> how up. he comes across is just... Everyone else seems very innocent. He is the one that, from the very beginning, just seems like there's something going on with that dude. The bingo auction scene? Mm. Oh, he is so creepy. Mm. This entire first conversation with him is just like a series of of just like red flags, but it's all couched in this. uh, Jordan Peele is like using the West Wing to make this like point, and that like Bradley Whitford, you know, most of the people that know him know him from the West Wing. They know him as this like you know progressive political white character there. And that, you know, that he intentionally, like, takes those feelings that people have about this this actor and is like, yeah, this is the kind of guy he is. Sure. Like, oh, make, I thought that, you meant, make that assumption. I thought you meant the tour through the house was a callback to the Sorkin walk and talks. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing quite as obnoxious as those, thankfully. Um, but, oh, man, this, this conversation where he shows him... Um, he shows him the picture of his uh, dad on the wall and is talking about how like his dad lost the qualifying Olympic race to Jesse Owens, who then, you know, would go on to like, you know, win in the Olympics and, and you know, in front of Hitler and prove that asshole wrong about genetics and um, superiority of the white race and this and like how his, his dad never never quite got over that and like that is something that is literally going to come running back into the movie <laughs> yeah yeah it, it really didn't click for me until later i'm like okay now i because it really was bothering me i'm like i don't understand this why why is this man running through the i don't i get it now we understand what was happening we understand the you know the twist but i still don't get why this man was running through that and then i'm like oh <laughs> when she says who he is i'm like okay it all comes flashing back to me now but i think the real takeaway is white women with teacups are evil oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh she was god that whole character of what was her name again georgina or oh the mom the, yeah the yeah, mom Catherine Keener. um Uh, missy the way she i felt like she was almost the meanest to chris like just the way she used his mother's death against him just felt crueler than almost anything else in the movie like i don't know that just hit me on such a visceral level yeah the way that like chris is very clearly telling her that he doesn't want to keep going with this that he doesn't want to be part of this that like you know he's she is pushing it and continuing to take advantage of him here is is well not not yet but later is is very unnerving um she she's a lot uh but we also meet uh we mentioned a little bit walter the groundskeeper uh who is black and georgina the maid who is also black um that are working for them um and are both immediately both immediately creep Chris out um, because Walter seems to be you know weirdly hostile, kind of staring him down, and uh, Georgina is uh, 
he he makes a he makes a mistake he'll make later too of, of trying to like relate to this other character because they're the other black person there and thinking that like he'll get this sort of welcome response from them and not not getting it at all and i like, mean it's, it's so good just i don't know i think especially with the groundskeeper it's when I see another black guy and we're walking towards each other, you give them the nod. Like that is just, it's just how it works. And if it's not returned, then it's like, okay, something's weird here. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And so the fact that like neither Georgina nor Walter return his attempts to connect on a racial level, level is like extremely unsettling. It just, you have no friends, you have no lifeline. There is no one here to help you. Like you are by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, <clears throat> What Ben might find uh, unsettling about Georgina is that after, at the end of the movie, um, you know, we know now who the parents really are. And there's just something that I think, it's almost as if she is the one who's most overt in practicing her racism, but because she is kind of like the servant uh, class in this movie, she has no choice but to, you know, listen to this guy and be admonished by him. And you can tell she really, really resents that, uh, you know, and, and and I think just for the dad, it, he's completely clueless. Uh, uh, so you have one who's like completely ignorant of uh, black people and you have the other one that is just doesn't seem to particularly like black people. Yeah, and this, this actress, uh, um, uh, Betty Gabriel is, incredible like the place mm-hmm. Georgina she is able to make the, these scenes unsettling without like doing anything really overt just like her mannerisms the way she stands the like weirdly quick way she leaves a room um it's all things that are just just like that much out of place and uh like there there's a scene with her later on that's one of the most incredible like Mm-hmm. 10 seconds of acting I've ever seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and we do, we get a little bit here with uh, them walking around the grounds. You know, he, uh, the uh, dad is, is pointing out that they have, you know, total privacy out here. There's nobody out there for, for miles until the other side of the lake. Uh, we also find out all about some of Chris's past that is his parents are dead. His dad was never really in the picture and his mom died when he was young. Um, we we also find out that these uh, these two servants, Georgina and Walter, specifically what uh, what the dad character says is Georgina and Walter were brought on to take care of my parents, and when they died, he couldn't be- I couldn't bear to let them go, um, which is like really interesting phrasing on, on Jordan Peele's part in writing this because uh, it seems like. He's uh, playing with antecedents and stuff there where he's just like, it It sounds like he couldn't let his parents go and that's going to turn out to be what it actually means. Right. It's interesting yeah. because it goes back to what was being said earlier. Is like there's certain things that you get, certain things that you see on your second and third watch of the movie. But if you don't see them, it doesn't really detract from, you know, the 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 fear, the the anxiety, the the tension of the movie, because some most of what we're talking about, I, I noticed, you know, first way through, but you know, some of the 
you know, the the callbacks and the and the language and the little you know I don't want to, I don't want to call them Easter eggs or whatever I didn't notice right away um, but still that tension was there so it's sort of like it's almost like those things are bonuses you know if, as you're going through um, and then I guess as you see it again I, I was actually texting with a friend of mine I was, as I was watching it and he literally said to me because there's just so many things that you see on your third and fourth watch is like there's no way in hell i'm doing this <laughs> third and fourth time it's worth it though. it's so good <laughs> it's like it's like not tonight it's an amazing movie but jordan peele is, is so good at crafting that high level like horror and unsettling feel i showed one friend who's not a horror fan us and she still hasn't fully forgiven me <laughs> believe it believe i actually saw that movie um you know, on my own, just sort of like, okay, well, I'm here, it's coming on, let's watch it, and let's go through. And again, that was a little bit more, I don't want to say supernatural, but you know what I'm saying, a little bit more, right. I don't know, horror-y than this one. So I, I, I don't really connect them the same way. But again, I th think what continued to sort of play into the tension that was sort of building in me was again, the horrors of reality, the horrors of, you know, this is not something that you can detach from. This is not something. So again, you're, you know, you're walking in and you know, one of the things that frustrated me, I have in my notes is like, well, he wasn't obligated to sit down and, and, and watch her drink tea and, and have this conversation. He could have just gone. But the reality is that in that situation that he was in, he felt obligated you know, to, to, to sort of respond to her in a sort of subservient way and say, well, yes, I, I, I guess because you are my girlfriend's mother, I need to sit here and, and sort of and, and humor you by, you know, letting you do whatever it is you're going to do, you know, while you're talking, talking at me while having your tea, little did you know that, you know, little did I know that you're getting into my head, but there are all these roles, I think, that facilitate him becoming more vulnerable you know i i don't know if that was all these roles facilitated by race that facilitated him being more vulnerable because you don't i don't know if that was a situation where he was going to his black friend a girlfriend's house you know you know in the woods or wherever that he would have felt as obligated to to give in in so many for example if he was going to his black girlfriend's house in the woods and i have to jump ahead but would i don't know if i would have let somebody's brother come and throw their hands around my neck and try to get me to mma wrestle you know in the middle you know of the dining room i probably would have been you know so apt to impress people or to or maybe the better word is not so much impressed, but to disarm people and not, you know, invoke fear. Because I do think that's a good portion of it. You sort of want to be, you know, when you're a black person, particularly a black man in a all white space, so much of your energy goes to, okay, I'm just going to say it, being one of the good ones. Absolutely. I'm just going to say it, you know, and, and not giving them a reason to fear you and sort of putting them at ease. And so I think so much of that desire to, put people at ease is what made him so vulnerable, you know, in this film, which I think is great writing. Yeah. And I think, again, that's like very much one of those things. It's like, oh, this is a person who has lived this experience 
and is like writing from that. Um, and it's, it, it's so incredibly done. Uh, this is also the scene where we get the intro to the idea of Missy doing hypnosis um, that, you know, they talk about his smoking and they, they talk about it very quickly. Like it's a huge problem for them that uh, Chris smokes and um, you know, she's, Oh, she can help him, you know, learn how to not do it with some, uh, some, some light hypnosis. And this, this scene also like, there's a bit in a second after this where like, uh, it's one of those things like Georgina is pouring tea and like literally ends up like spilling the tea when, you know, the, when Missy like accidentally clinks the spoon on the glass because like, she's so attuned to that Missy is so in control of everything here that just, you know, that accidental like clink is, is almost enough to, you know, set, set Georgina off. Just is such a like clever bit that you, you don't know what's happened until later in the movie. This is also where we learn about the big get together. That's going to be the next day of all the, the dad's, old the dad's dad's old friends all come together as part of this thing and they still host it even though the dad is not around anymore and uh you know they're they're gonna be tons of old white people coming over to the house it's gonna be a real fun party rose is immediately like oh no you're gonna hate it it's gonna be terrible um which gives chris i think even more incentive to be like no no it's fine it's fine i'm fine it's okay um which it's you know, like, this is, this is um <clears throat> This is so minor a point, but I really love the um, when Rose argued with her mother about uh, people coming over as if, no, I didn't know. That is so, um, <clears throat> every argument between daughter and parent that I eavesdropped on. Absolutely. Like they, the, the like acting of the, you know, what turned out to be the villainous family characters in this story is, is so good, which I, I think is part of what makes uh, this this next scene so interesting when uh, they are having dinner and uh, Jeremy shows up. Jeremy being uh, Rose's brother, and boy, boy, do I hate the number of douchebags named Jeremy in movies. But this guy <laughs> is particularly just the goddamn worst. He is, but Caleb Landry Jones does a great job. As does the whole cast. Really, the whole cast just knocks it out of the freaking park on this movie. Yeah, Caleb Landry Jones and his his talk about jujitsu and how it's strategic like chess and how with, you know, with Chris's build and genetic makeup, he could really be a monster if he, you know, tried I, to do I, MMA and worked out I the do, whole thing. It's just, oh my God, I hate this guy. I do two notes about um, about Jeremy in this scene is I do love how the whole like jujitsu, it's a mind game, like fucking bullshit ends up like really foreshadowing how their final confrontation at the end goes. Like, I really love how it's like Chris, you know, playing into patterns and being set like multiple steps ahead, just like you're saying here. And second, I love how he is aggressively speaking in a different accent than the rest of his family. <laughs> yeah. His whole performance, though, just like his, how he says his words, even how he moves his body in that scene, it's just, it's almost like he seems like he's a few drinks in or like a few drinks ahead of everyone. And just like something is not right with him and mm -hmm. how he interacts with everyone is, it's weird. I, I, I think he also embodies a lot of that um, masculinity that uh, you were referring to earlier in terms of um, just wanting to, to, to 
challenge the first other male he sees and sniff his ass and kind of that. And, uh, and I guess, in a sense, without the other context of what happens later on, I guess, in a sense, protecting his sister from this outsider. But um, really, I think that's what's so grating about him, that, you know, that we know this guy and he's the one that it has to be, like, big dick all over all of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I'm I'm sure you guys have had this experience, but even, like, not being Black, like, I very specifically remember a guy I used to work with in the grocery store in high school who, like, was this, like, wiry white kid who played football and just, like, had to prove to you how much stronger he was and how much better he was than like every black person that even came up in conversation. Like he's just so, so incredibly racist in just such an incredibly like low self-esteem kind of way. Like that, you know, he just has to like get in there and just show you how tough he is. Even when like nobody's arguing with him, like nobody's trying to prove they're tougher than him. He's just gotta, he just gotta show everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I fucking hate Jeremy. And the, the sort of double game of this, like once you know what the once you know what the actual thing is, that like it seems like the parents are getting upset with him for being weirdly racist like he is, but the parents are really upset with him because he's like this close to giving the game away the whole time that like his aggressiveness towards Chris is is you know threatening to fuck up their whole situation. There was a split second where I was thinking to myself, okay, this is going to be the twist. He's going to be the one that's going to save Chris the whole time. He's going to be the one that's going to free that him somehow. <laughs> I was just giving my, I was just hoping against hope. I'm like, please don't make him a white savior. <laughs> but I was like, but and the, in the back of my mind, I was like, is he going to, he's going to be the one. He's going to be the one that's like, I'm in on it. I know what the family is doing. Um, I, I, I like this guy. I'm going to save him and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that didn't quite go as... In a lesser movie, nope. in a lesser definitely movie, no that white, might have been the case. Definitely no white saviors in this film, that's for sure. So this is, you know, after all this wraps up, we get, uh, you know, them them back in the room and Rose is giving this whole, like, monologue about her parents and how, like, racist they've acted and how embarrassed she is and her brother and what's up with him. And literally, like, literally, Chris gets to say, I told you so. Because <laughs> yeah, it's everything that he warned her it was going to be. Which this scene goes so much into like just setting up how evil Rose is in this movie that like she is double gaming this bit here to just like reaffirm his feelings that things are weird and to make him tell her everything is okay. I hate it. <laughs> Again, that vulnerability, yeah. the, the accommodating vulnerability that that just puts him where he ends up, which is yeah. again scary, which is why I stay in the house not in Guad anymore. <laughs> in DC, yeah, especially wise right now. And then, yeah, this is going to be. I mean, this is maybe like the outright creepiest scene of the movie coming up, where you know he's not being able to go to sleep. He's hearing the bugs. He's decides that he's you know finally going to get up and, and sneak a cigarette. He's going to go outside and smoke. And uh, you know, first he he sees this. This lands like the landscaper Walter just running at him full tilt out of nowhere. Um, it's just outright creepy. He doesn't know what the hell's going on. It's a weirdly long scene for what feels like a jump scare, and then like he just you know turns off at the last minute and runs off back into the woods. 
Um, and it is not explained at all <laughs> um, to Chris at this point. And then like he, he turns around to like figure out what's, see if he can figure out what's going on. And Georgina is like standing there in the, the window. It turns out not to be looking at him, but looking in the mirror and messing with her hair, um, which she is, this character is constantly messing with her hair for like reasons we'll find out later. What I couldn't quite understand was I can't think of a single situation where I see a man running at me out of the woods and I don't immediately vacate that area. Yeah, this is Cedric the Entertainer, King's Economy, if, or King's Economy. If you're running, I'm running. Like, I don't, I don't have to question it. I have to find out. Like, if I see a black dude running out of the woods, I'm gone. We can find That's out what it. that like, threat was later. But like, this is the one moment where, you know, lost my suspense of disbelief or just like, why is he still standing there? So, Get moving. <laughs> there is no reason, and there sure as hell is no way I would have gone back into that house and calmly sat down or, or even gone back to bed. There's just no way it would have been, where are the keys? Where, where are the keys? We got to go. We got to go tonight. <laughs> there's, I'm not going to sleep here because there are Black people running out of the woods. And I feel like that's problematic for me. So I, I, that, that sort of took me out of it for a second. I'm like, yeah. Now I'm feeling like you deserve it because you didn't get all the signs <laughs> and you didn't run when you should have run. I think the I think part of why that scene worked, at least for me, was just like the weirdness of the way he's running. Like he's not running like somebody who's running away from something or is going to attempt to tackle Chris. Like he's running in form like he is sprinting on a track, um, which like we'll, we'll find out why. But like the the weirdness of it is the only is somehow the saving grace of it that you're like you're like i i don't it doesn't seem like he's running from anything he's not yelling he's not is, is he coming after me like what is going on it's like the t1000 run where it's just like this yeah. is this is weird because of like I don't know, like uncanny valley. Like that is not how humans typically run. Like you're running in a weird way, which is adding to this whole scene being unsettling. Like also He's running me Tom Cruise run. Yes. <laughs> again, this isn't the city where there's lots of street lights around. You are running on hills through wooded areas in the complete fucking dark of the suburbs. You're gonna twist your ankle. <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> Again, um, all you have to do is run. I, I don't need explanations in the moment. I just know that you're running. Someone's running. I'm going to run too. I, it, it's just like when you see people and everyone's looking up or if you're walking down the street and everyone just like ducks or, or does something, your initial response is, I'm going to duck because clearly something's coming at my head. So I, I'm thinking, if running, I'm running. I'm trying to imagine how tired I'd have to be to just kind of stand there while someone just sprinted at me dead on. <laughs> Like, I'm like, like, okay, it's he's tired, but like, how tired do you have to be to just have no reaction to that? Comatose. Yeah. Well, he's, he's about to be a lot more tired after this next scene because he, he comes back in from his smoke break and uh, finds, oh, the, scene. finds the mom sitting there, and the mom uh, encourages him to come sit down and, and talk to her. And uh, she keeps, she's talking about what she's doing while doing it which is like a neat trick that you don't really realize is going on until she makes it clear because she's because he's like oh what are you going to do like dangle a pocket watch in front of me and she's like well we do 
occasionally use, you know, uh, things to, to, you know, draw people's attention to make them focus on something. And she's sitting there just stirring that little teacup the whole time, making the same noise every time, moving it the same way. And uh, it, it has that effect without you necessarily realizing right away that it's having that effect. And she starts asking him like with these really personal questions about first is his nerves and, and why he's upset. And then about his mother. And you find out that like he has this deep set guilt because when he was a, a kid, his mother uh, was hit by a car and uh, you know, was sort of left dying on the side of the road while he was at home watching TV and he didn't know what happened to her, but he knew that, you know, she was later than she should be and he didn't do anything about it. You know, as a kid, he just sat there and kept watching TV the way a kid would. Um, he's really, really fucked up about this whole thing. And she just keeps like asking him questions and, and digging deeper into that. And uh, it's clear that like, it starts out as him not feeling like he can't answer. And then like gradually getting pulled into this, you know, hypnosis bit where he, he can't leave. Um, he feels paralyzed. Like she, she says that he is paralyzed and he can't move. Daniel Kaluuya does such an incredible job selling this whole thing up, up into, you know, when she, uh, she taps her, her spoon on the, the cup and he falls into the sunken place, which, you know, is this sort of starry nothingness where he can sort of see what's going on. Like it's like a movie theater, but he can't do anything about it. What did you guys think of this scene? Again, that scene was what was kind of, I know I keep, it's a broken record. It's almost like he, that, that position of vulnerability, that position of a, being accommodating is what made him so much more vulnerable. And again, I'm still going to go back to say, if I just watch the guy come out of the woods and run at me, I'm not going to sit down and watch my, my girlfriend's mom have tea. I'm really <laughs> going to be, going to be packing my bags and trying to figure out how to go. But I don't know. I think it was, you're right. I do believe, you know, as I was, you know, watching all these things happening, I'm like, she's literally telling you how she's going to get you. She's, she's literally like reading from the recipe book exactly how she's going to get you and you're letting her get you and now it's too late. So it's done. Um, I thought that was sort of a very well-crafted scene um, of like tension buildup and um, not realizing it's tension build up. Everyone, you know, the scene starts and everyone's very relaxed and, you know, she's giving him the, you know, are you welcome here? Are you comfortable here? And you're really realizing later that she's, she's making sure that he's in the mindset to, you know, to, I don't know, what, what's the word I'm looking for to. Heightened susceptibility. Correct. Exactly. That's what I could think of. Um, she, she's basically grooming him, um, which then, just ramped up the creep factor for me even more you know, way, once I made that realization. The way she weaponizes his guilt over his mother's death, I don't know yeah. what it was about that, but like, that was so, so hard to watch. That felt so painful. And also Daniel Kaluuya just, just sells that grief and that guilt to such a heartbreaking degree. I remember thinking, sorry, go ahead. I think it's one of the, um, <clears throat> I think it might be the most, or at least the first most legitimately disturbing moment of the movie. <clears throat> like, I think we're used to seeing roadkill as kind of foreshadowing as all the death and war that's going on later on. Um, 
the running is weird. We used to stream people do weird things, but there are just like so many layers to the scene that really makes it deeply disturbing. And it goes back to that thing I was saying about common experiences, whether you've suffered sleep paralysis or any kind of paralysis in the moment, um, that can affect you there. And when I, I think what really, you know, I, it, same with me, it got to me that is she was uh, talking to him about his dead mother, but and that's a lot to put on a child. He was sitting there watching her. There's really nothing he could do. And even if he could do anything, he found out way too late about it. Um, you know, and, and to tell a kid or someone who was a kid at the time that the person you love most in the world is dead and it's your fault. Um, I, I think that was the real first clue to me that it, it was going to be the whole family that was kind of fucked up and that we were starting to go places with this film. Yeah. I, I feel like Catherine Keener is the real like villain of this film. Like you know, the whole, <laughs> yeah. the whole family is pretty awful, but like the coldness with which she just, just fucks with his head is, is, Oh, it, it's, disturbing and and amazing from an acting standpoint and apparently this was also the scene that like got daniel kaluuya the part apparently he uh you know read this scene in audition for uh for with jordan peele and apparently they did it like four times in a row and uh apparently daniel kaluuya cried on cue four times in a row wow which is just just pretty amazing but uh yeah i mean you, you you can see it in this scene like he is so good in this scene and like you're so with him and i i think that's a lot of the key to this movie working and jordan peele talks about it a little bit is that like it's so very much with daniel like every time they choose not to be from daniel's perspective it's a very strategic one but like you're you're so with him the whole time and finding things out as he's finding them out you know it it forces you to see things from Daniel's perspective. Uh, I did read that Jordan Peele really wanted Chris to feel like uh, an intelligent every man. Like if a normal person was trapped in a horror movie, but someone who was still like, always just like intelligent and observant. That's, that's absolutely how it feels to me. We, we jumped a little forward to Chris wakes up the next day. There's this uh, recurring thing with his, his phone being unplugged. Georgina is apparently unplugging his phone and he's, always this close to being out of battery which will obviously come back you know and then uh and he decides to go to go out and do some some picture taking we find out you know chris is a, a photographer was a, a great eye to be out and you know taking pictures of nature and, and all this stuff and this is uh this is where the party starts we have several uh very similar looking black vehicles full of old white people um that pull up and unload and uh Walter and Georgina, especially Walter, go out and greet them jovially in a way that we've not seen Walter act this entire movie. He's, you know, clapping people on the back and hugging them and welcoming them as they're all sort of uh, pulled into the house to, to be part of this party. And the party is so incredibly uncomfortable because everybody seems to not just want to talk to Chris, but want to praise Chris because, you know, there there's all these conversations about, oh, you know, it's, what's his sport? Is he played? golf before does he know anything about golf they you know people feeling up on his his biceps everyone in this party is so uncomfortable 
to I say the least. I literally took the note during that scene. I was like, there is, I'm reading right now, there's just no way to feel comfortable around that many white people at one time. And that's, <laughs> that's literally how, as I was watching it, I'm like, there's just no way to, to calm yourself around that many white people in the woods at, you know, <laughs> at, at a time. There's no way. So again, ratchet up the anxiety of a couple more notches for me. I'm like, oh, crap. I mean, this is where we know he's screwed at least before he maybe he, he might have been able to take a couple of them but now there's like a house full of people that he's just no way he's going to get through them all one well, the isolation well, too right like he can't cause a scene because they have driven their hours out of town and they're staying there right if you were you know in your hometown you're just like well i'm just gonna go back to my apartment if you're not staying there, it's like we're leaving now like i'm not but like, and it's, it's her car like, too exactly yeah. like all his stuff's upstairs he doesn't have a driver's license like every single detail is about isolating him from any person of color that could help him. Like even the phone unplugging thing. And I think I think I think it's um as you go um you know when you watch the movie again, you realize it's less people making small talk and being interested in like the oddity of the black man being there. Um and it's more that, you know, they're at the meat market looking at a piece of meat. That's what they're doing. Yeah, yep. like what they, they might as well be checking his teeth. Like, it's that. Well, what did the guy say? Yeah, exactly. Black is in fashion now or something. Oh, I can't remember yeah. the exact line. <laughs> like, wait, okay, fair skin has been like the preferred or whatever for, for centuries, but now black is in fashion. Was like, Lord. Wow. Was like, okay. That was, uh, oh boy. It's so funny because if you thought the conversation with the dad was cringy at the beginning of the movie and then you get to this and she's like, Oh, it can get worse. Cool, 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 cool. Like, there's so many other problematic things we can say. Like, did you get your helping of microaggressions? Here's some more. Like, <laughs> and as soon as you think it can't get any worse, when we've just had this conversation with this, uh, this guy that says black is in fashion. Chris finds a black guy at this thing. There's there's one black <laughs> man at the, you know, at the the bar getting some food. Sounds like the and... most. You may sound like the most awkward like children's book. Like Chris finds a black. <laughs> <laughs> hello black you know, man and he he is you can see clearly on his face that he's relieved and like he's gonna go up and talk to this guy and he you know he calls him brother and says you know so so glad to see another brother at the party and like from the moment this guy turns around which you know this is again lakeith stanfield who we saw at the beginning of the movie but in a very different context than we saw him previously in this like bizarre old man outfit with the straw hat and like, like in a barbershop quartet like yeah <laughs> and like presenting in this way that is just like unnerving he and... looks like a mentor figure in a movie set in like 1920s new orleans he looks like Stephen King's imagining of a magical Negro. That is the guy that shows up to tell you, like, you just got to trust the light. Like, exactly. The magical Negro. I was, I swear I was going to say, yep. <laughs> now, this is the scene. This handshake is the scene in the trailer that sealed the deal and made me want to see this movie because it is the most unsettling thing to happen is, all right, we're going to connect. You're, you're, you're a brother. Like, I got this. Like, it's us against all these folks. And then he botches the dap, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so, oh man, like, because everything about this, this guy is creepy. He introduced himself as Logan King, like, 
he's clearly not like connecting with Chris the way that Chris wants him to. Um, but he seems to think everything is fine. And then Chris goes to, to dap him and puts out the fist and the guy like puts his hand on Chris's fist like they're shaking hands. Now I've done like the whole awkward like, oh, are we high-fiving? Are we fist bumping? Are we, we got to take a second, figure it out. The bold psychopath confidence of I am going to shake this man's fist. <laughs> but did you In no world like- is that correct. That's not a thing anybody does. <laughs> Ever go ahead and do it. Did you all feel like I feel like every scene like either then that he was perfectly you could see that struggle underneath the surface. Yes, you know all the time. Like he was, he was presenting in a way that was supposed to be. I am happy to be here. I am, you know, I'm proud. But he would. You could always see that strain and struggle. Like he was battling underneath to go even before you really knew what the the strain and the struggle was. I was, I just felt like he's, he, there's a tension, you know, or a sadness underneath him that is just flowing through every scene. It's, it was he, masterful. He, he does a very good job with it, but he's completely outclassed by Betty Gabriel. Every scene that she's in has that tension just, you know. Oh yeah. I'll oh. be here. Like she is, he does the like internal struggle. She has the visible surface struggle. of yeah. like Someone who, is nearly there and trying to warn you. Uh, but I mean, we're I, coming up to it pretty soon. The uh, the phone charger scene. So good. Uh, yeah, and I I think uh, you know Keith's thing might be partially you know this this guy is supposed to be fairly new to this body, so you know maybe that's part of the awkwardness and you know clearly he's wearing his old clothes um, on this new body. Um, yeah, but this is just a whole series of, of like unsettling scenes. Like it gets worse and worse. Um, the only the only relief in this is Jim Hudson, who's played by Stephen Root, who's this like blind guy who turns out to be somebody that knows Chris's work and he he owns a studio and like they have this like nice talk about how you know good Chris's eye is and how how great he is at what he does and uh, you know. Chris almost kind of gets that connection from him that he was he was looking for from Logan, mm-hmm. you know, despite him being a, an old white man. But he's he seems to be an old white man that's just like, no, I hate all these other people. <laughs> like they're terrible. Yeah. Um, he's one of the good ones. He, he absolutely thinks he's one of the good ones, and by ones I mean a body stealing psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also, I mean, I feel like that character can see all the cringy racism without seeing his own racism. And it's that kind of, it's like, you know, the character almost says like, I never care. I don't care if you're black or green or purple, but you can almost feel him say that kind of thing where he wants Chris's artistic talent and thinks it can be completely divorced by all the experiences and like and the aspects of his identity that shaped that creative eye and that talent. Right. It's a thing you have, not a thing you are. Like Yeah. Yeah. I I do think that the character is incredibly interesting because you know, I I don't know what exactly the intention is, but I feel like he is a character who who at least doesn't exhibit outright racism, but who does not put any value in, in Chris's life and personhood. Um, 
you know, and he's, he's a decent person to talk to, but he's also a wholly awful person who, you know, uh, is, is putting his own sight and self-preservation above, you know, Chris's life. Also just the sense of, oh, I, a white man couldn't make it with my own artistic talent. So I'm going to steal a black man's artistic talent. Is that that's not a story we haven't seen a thousand times in American entertainment history. This is a boiled down version of that. This is literally just, you no, know, we're literally going to steal, you know, your talent, not, not the byproducts of your talent, but your actual talent. So yeah, it just makes it that much more creepy. Which in a way is kind of how this movie connects to Space Jam. <laughs> that is a wild sentence. Wow. My head is spinning. Pretty <laughs> good segue. Thank you. That's no. not a take that's going to go any further than that, but I'm glad I can make that connection. There's some real monsters, these guys. Um, so uh, this, Chris finally decides he's, he's going to go back to his room. He wants to, uh, uh, to call Rod. As soon as Chris goes up the stairs, everybody stops talking. Which is not a Ugh. thing. Is one of the few points where, like, you're divorced from Chris's perspective. You see that, like, when Chris leaves, this happens. Uh, it's incredibly well done and very creepy. But you know, Chris goes back upstairs and finds his phone unplugged again. He uh, says something about it to uh, to Rose, who's like, "Oh, yeah, I'll mention it to Georgina." He's he's sure that Georgina hates him, um, and that's why she keeps doing it. Finally, he, he does finally get to talk to Rod, and Rod basically gives him an I told you so speech about this and uh, he's sure that uh, they're all these old white people are, are going to make Chris into a sex slave that that's what they want yeah. Yeah. who hasn't had that fear like <laughs> every day of my life <laughs> uh, yeah. so yeah another survival tip from this movie bring a mobile charger right make yeah. sure you can charge that while it's still in your pocket Lap that sucker in a bag somewhere I agree bring a burner phone <laughs> just in case you i like that this movie doesn't divorce him from his phone though like it's the, it's clearly a problem that they're trying to deal with in a way that like takes it out of the picture but so many horror movies are like guess we don't get reception out here oh no i dropped my phone in the first five minutes of the movie and the screen cracked like this is the phone's still there and he can call out it's a lot of good that it does him hours from the city but like it's still a resource i mean it still yeah. gives him crucial information it gives rod crucial mm -hmm. information it's an asset he is able to rely on it's a factor in kind of you know the threat that the armitages possess like it's a factor they take into account it again i do appreciate how much of a back and forth struggle kind of the phone is versus just like up oh, we're in the suburbs just no reception out here darn you hey. verizon <laughs> uh yeah that's it's it's so interesting the the phone is sort of that you know thing they're they're constantly dealing with in this because what what emmanuel was saying was reminding me of uh of black christmas the scene where they're all on their phones and then they get attacked and they simultaneously all drop their phones and then forget that they've dropped them and run <laughs> off <laughs> and then like they get upstairs and they're like none of us have phones now i was like this is this is the moment where I've had to suspend my disbelief. Is that you guys just all simultaneously dropped your phones and ran away? Well, also they're just like in the modern house. There's so many devices that I can message out. Like, there's this laptop. There's that desktop. There's the PS4. Like, imagine I message you on PSA. Like, yo, these people are trying to kidnap me. Like, they're 
so many horror movies just tend to ignore how ubiquitous the tech is and just like once the phone's cracked i guess it's broken forever like so my first thought was well why are you charging your phone in the middle of the day your phone was you were sitting next to you all night long it should be you should be good to go in the morning when you get up so that you don't have to leave your phone up to charge later in the day then my next thought was there's a lot of microsoft product placement in this movie what's that all about (laughs) where'd that come from yeah they uh the, you think someone would have an iPhone. Later, Rose searches on Bing. He has a Microsoft <laughs> yeah. uh, phone. I was like, Bing, oh, the this, official search engine of the TSA. Uh, the Surface Pro. And yeah. It was used multiple times. Like, hmm, okay, interesting. In this iPhone world, we have all Microsoft products like <laughs> hanging out. Yeah, and there, his, her, her family is such very uh, Apple people anyway. Yeah, he's got the whole Steve Jobs look as it is. Like, yeah. Um, oh, but this is this is the scene we were talking about before. Maybe one of the best scenes in the movie, where after he hangs up, Georgina comes to uh, it would seem apologize for unplugging the phone, and he says something about like you know when there's this many white people around, I just get kind of nervous. And she looks at him and like a single tear comes out of her eye and she like she looks terrified and then just says no 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 and that's not my experience at all and it's it's just such a like weird moment that you just like you don't know what's going on and this actress is is selling the weirdness of this so hard i was gonna say the crying while denying it and also like smiling it's just such her face is in such conflict with itself but it sells the entire scene like it's so good i remember thinking like she deserves an oscar just for that like that that is the movie that scene didn't so much creep me out as it broke my heart it it really just made me sad because it was like you could see her struggling so hard like you could tell it was literally right on the surface, like whatever she was trying to do. And it was so out of her reach. And then when you sort of put that in the context of the sunken place, you know, visualizing her sort of sinking, like getting a little bit closer and closer to that opening and then, you know, sinking further and further back. I just had this image in my head of her just being mentally beaten back down, but being almost there. And And that's, that's followed very closely by a very similar scene with Logan where Chris is like, he, he's sure he wants to take a picture of this guy. He's sure that he's seen him somewhere. And like when the flash goes off on his camera in this guy's eyes, he stops dead and then like turns to Chris and like grabs him and is like, get out, get out, get the fuck out. Like, and like everybody tries to tell Chris that this is a, a seizure that this guy had, that, you know, there's nothing for him to worry about, that it's, it's all okay. But like, I love when the flash happens and all of the sound cuts out. Like even just like the, all the background nature sounds, it's just dead silent. It's, it's well, so it's unnerving. The same scene too with Logan where he says something that like, Chris was just telling me that he was so happy to see another black man. And it's like, come on, man. Daniel's face in that scene is just like, <laughs> Really? Like, <laughs> you motherfucker. It wouldn't have been weirder if he had said Blackman. <laughs> I was happy to see another Blackman. Uh, God, I was waiting for someone. I, I swear to you, I'm not kidding. Through the whole movie, I was waiting for someone to say colored. I really was. <laughs> I was just on the edge of my seat. 
but like that's the good thing about it. It's, it's I think it's like Jeremy said at the beginning. There's none of that overt stuff. It's always just like microaggressions. It's just like that. Are you intending to be that problematic, or is this just you know you're ignorant about how these things work? Beyond being able to say, oh well, I would never, you know, hypnotize and take over somebody's body. There's really that. It's not that overt. Oh. I wouldn't do a hate crime. I wouldn't say that awful slur. So since I'm not like, there's that cartoonishly racism that I know I wouldn't do. So I get to be one of the good ones. Like there isn't any of that. There's no easy outs for people. It's on there. There aren't any good ones in this movie. Like (laughs) none of the white, like from the cop to like any casual white person in this movie, they're all terrible. And it's like, that's great. Like there's no, redeeming like oh, but like this one he you can trust him he gets it it's like nope they're all bad like this is this is the horror of it is you can't trust any of them it's sad that on a sliding scale the cop probably was the best of all <laughs> <you> <laughs> know, of all in this scene only because you didn't give him we didn't give him an opportunity to really show how much of an yeah. asshole he truly was we best cut him character- off before he got there best character by virtue of lack of screen time exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, and I mean, Logan goes into a room with, with Missy, and when he comes back out, he's himself again, or Logan again, as it were. And, you know, he's he's uh, all, all happy, and they're, they're going to go from there. And uh, Chris is freaked out by it. He, you know, decides to go take a walk with... <laughs> he decides to go take a walk with Rose, and uh, they, they, you know, go off into the woods. And uh, he is expressing to her that, like, he feels like he knows the not Logan, but he knows the guy who was talking to him and was telling him to get out. Like that he's seen that guy before, and he's 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 starting to like catch on that something is up. Uh, and he he just wants to go home. He wants to get out of there. He's he's gonna leave. And um, and she pulls the uh, just the most awful guilt trip of like, oh, you're just gonna leave without me. Like this is it, huh? This is you know the you're breaking up our relationship kind of thing. Um, There's three month relationship. <laughs> three month relationship. Yeah, if, if he is uncomfortable and going home, that means he is dumping her. And, you know, uh, how, how could he possibly do that? Um, and is playing on his own, his own insecurity and his own not having anybody, um, you know, not having a family of, of people to back him up or to go back to. Um, and he, he tells her like that she's, she's everything he has. Uh, and he's he's not leaving without her. After telling her the story about his mom, that he's he's never told her about the specifics of, you know, the the fact that she probably lived most of the night on the side of the road, injured, and you know nobody nobody came to help because he didn't tell anybody about it because he didn't know, but you know he knew something was wrong. Which yeah, that whole thing is a rough scene, but not as rough as what is going on simultaneously, which is them using bingo cards for an auction. Oh, uh, this Bradley, I know I said earlier, but this is Bradley Woodford's just at his creepiest. Also, yes. I do not know how this bidding system works. <laughs> okay, I'm glad someone else brought that up because I'm like, I, I don't get this. Like, if do you get bingo and you win, or is it like, what, like, like what? are they just using what? these as calling cards? Do the patterns matter? Exactly. No, they're just, they're just holding them up like auction paddles. They don't, yeah, they all have bingos marked out just for you know the sake of, of covering it if he should walk up, but they're all just using them as, as auction paddles. Bradley Whitford is holding up 
numbers. I don't think we ever find out whether it's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or whatever. Um, I hope it's hundreds of thousands. Jesus. Right? (laughs) Yeah, millions. We don't know. Can a person's life be at least six figures? (laughs) (laughs) It's like $40, $50, 60. Oh, wait, hold on. What's up? Yeah, and we we do see that... uh, uh steven root's character uh wins the auction but we we don't really get any more from that we don't even get any sound from that scene um as we're seeing the other scene go down so so rose agrees that they'll go ahead and go back to the house and pack up and go home um you know that they've they've got to go if chris is uncomfortable they'll they'll go together because she's with him she says she's going to make something up for a story to cover for them leaving and chris goes back and, and sends a picture of logan to rod and rod immediately knows who this guy is mm-hmm. he's like oh yeah he you know he's so-and-so's cousin he used to work at the theater like i, I know this kid and uh he's like there's this is weird combination of like rod is simultaneously like like, oh yeah, that's what happens. You you know, you start dating a, an older white woman and suddenly you become this like weirdo that wears old man clothes. Um, <laughs> but also like, yeah, they're using him as a sex slave <laughs> in a way that like <laughs> almost almost doesn't help Chris at all in this situation. <laughs> However, full truth. One hundred percent true. Yeah. yeah. That's the the funniest thing about Rod as a character is that he's right. <laughs> right. Well, because he's TSA, so he just yeah. They got an innate sense about these things. I'm sorry, that's TS motherfucking A. I'm sorry, I was mistaken. That might be the greatest final line in any movie ever. He's like, "But I told you so." And so, like he he knows even more that things are wrong. He tells you know Rose they have to go right now. Rose says, "Okay, she's got to find the keys. She's she's getting ready." And uh, he happens to stumble across this this box of, of pictures of Rose, which start off like normal enough. They're just like pictures of her when she was younger. And then like sh- he finds a picture of, you know, her with another clearly black boyfriend, which, you know, she, she said that he's the first black guy she's ever dated. And then there's several of them. And then there's, you know, people he starts recognizing and you know, finally, there's a, a picture of her, kind of lovey-dovey with the uh, a young a younger woman who's you know Georgina, but not not as we've seen Georgina in this. And yet he's still trying to like he's still trying to go with her because you know she is telling him they're leaving. She's she's the one with the keys. She's the one with the car. She keeps saying she's looking for the keys. She's digging in her bag. She can't find him. He's like, all right, we'll we'll do it on the move. And like they go downstairs. And suddenly Jeremy's blocking the door and the, the rest of the family is there. And, you know, the he's, he's still like begging her for the, the keys. And mom is there with the teacup. And uh, finally, like her whole face changes. She pulls the keys out and she's like, you know, I can't give these to you, right? Like, and, you know, mom clinks the teacup and he's out like a light. Um, I feel like every black person in the theater turned into like Rod was like, I told you so. I told you. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, you done fucked up. (laughs) Like you're done. I felt, I felt like halfway through that, that whole scene, like he knew that it was a wrap. Like he, Mm -hmm. he, 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 
it was just like he was flailing, you know, asking her, sort of demanding that she hands over the keys. She he knew already that he was screwed, but I think he was just like holding on to the last possible hope that she could come up, that she will actually be on his side. Because you got to ask yourself, why is she going to be terrified of her own parents in her own house? I'm like, there's, there's, so that look on her face, that, that expression on her face, I'm like, I'm not buying it. This is her mom and dad and her brother. Why is she, why is she going to be, you know, so terrified that she's going to run out of here? I'm like, you know, you're screwed. Well, his <laughs> you know delivery of the line changes too. I think the last time he said it, it's like, where are the keys, Rose? Like he's just, he's already accepted that she is not going to find them and there's a reason yeah. for that, but he's just hoping out. But I also think it's the whole, every other horror movie that was written by white people tells you like, no, you there's going to be a good one. Like someone, <laughs> like one of them, the one that you have the closest bond with will, you know, come through for you. And that's not the case. <laughs> nope. But you gotta yeah. lay that up against the whole box of, uh, <laughs> of X's and I'm like, he literally asked you earlier in the film if I was the first black man that you've ever dated. You said yes. Meanwhile, <laughs> there's this treasure trove of you know missing black men. So at that point, she's immediately kicked off the list of good ones that's going to help me. You know, as, as soon as I see that box, I'm like, yeah, you're 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 done. Once you find her Dexter trophy box, it's, exactly. it's all over for you. The cool thing for- about that like with its storytelling was how much they changed the appearances of the black people. Like uh, Georgina's character has her hair straightened. Lakeith Stanfield's character, um, he's like wearing a hat. He's not clean shaven. Like they've done as much as possible to like, you know, remove the surface appearance of blackness. (laughs) I noticed with Georgina, it's, you know, when we see her after grandma's taken over, she's in a very bob cut wig, Mm -hmm. very traditional, like kind of white style. And versus when we see the photo of her with Rose in the, uh, you know, the photo stash where it's very noticeably like her with like natural long curly hair. That's like a twist out or something. Yeah. That's it's so, so incredibly well done. The, like the erosion of, you know, the, the trust that you felt like is still there between him and Rose up to that scene. And that she's like, Oh yeah, I'm still I'm still helping you. Like we're still gonna get out of here, as you know, as he's finding this evidence that she's not she's not gonna help him. They're not getting out of here, um, and you know that everything starts to close in on him. And he's still just like begging her to be decent, and you know, she she outright refuses. And and you know the the way this is acted by by Allison Williams in this scene is is pretty incredible. Like she does such a great job of doing this like heel villain turn that's usually it's usually reserved for men you know to like just make this turn of like oh no I'm I'm not that good person you thought I was I'm you know I'm a horrible villain and she she pulls it off so well the way she just switches like on the dime like it's Mm -hmm. instantaneous it's so unnerving she stops emoting and we don't really see her do it again until the end of the movie where she like puts that appearance back on of like, Hey, I love you. Like we can be together. But like everything after that is just blank and severe. I think the next scene we see her in her hair is like pulled back tight to exaggerate how sharp her features are. Like it's so good at like making her visibly villainous. I love how the, the, 
the method of making her seem more approachable is to give her bangs. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you take away her bangs, she's instantly evil. So I guess that's the sign. That's the warning sign. This is a PSA, America. <laughs> you know, never trust someone. Unless they have bangs, don't trust anyone, I guess. I don't know. But it it, it was interesting how they, the full-on appearance. Like I, I, I wondered at a certain point if the full-on appearance change was really necessary for that to happen because we did see her sort of, you know, like you said, literally stop emoting on the stairs and she was still in the same outfit and she was still in everything, but I still got the gravity of the change that had happened, um, you know, in that scene. So I did wonder for a little while if that full on sort of, okay, she's going into like full Stepford mode, if that was really, you know, necessary visually, but it, it didn't hurt. Um, it it did I, feel a little comic booky in that like, oh, there's the heel turn that time for her to get like her new villain costume. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I think what it works about it, though, is that um, <clears throat> we're kind of seeing, we get a glimpse as to who the real Rose actually is. And it's like such a movie about the dual nature of these people. Um, it takes us back to the Bradley Whitford scene, which uh, makes him so terrifying is when he conducts that silent option. Um, we see who the family really is, and I think it foreshadows a little bit what we're about to see with um, the cult and the legacy of his family and all of that. <clears throat> um, another reason I like the costume change is because it, I, I, I think especially now, it kind of speaks to how, like, you know, when you're looking for a member of, say, the Ku Klux Klan, and they're not going to be out there in their robes. They're going to look like, you know, um, a fireman. They're going to look like a baker. You know, they're going to look like, they're going to look totally relaxed, uh, like someone we might actually go and have a beer with and hang out with. And then they have, like, this costume change or they at might night like where they look there. Shirtless dude with a horned hat, with a horned hat, helmet hat. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. Uh, <laughs> I, I do love the scene when she's having the phone call uh, with Rod and we start out just hearing her voice and it's like the mask is on voice level like she's doing like all the normal level of emoting and then we see her and it's the voice is emoting and the face is blank so good I was afraid I, I did have this like deep-seated fear of like oh Jesus someone's gonna sh walk up behind Rod and like snatch him and I'm like then we're done I'm like then the voice of reason is gone then, then everyone's done um, so I was really sitting there like terrified when she's like, when she, her voice changes and she basically lets him know, I know what you're doing. I, I really was terrified. I'm like, please pull out, pull out for a, to a, a wider shot because I want to just make sure there's no one walking up <laughs> behind him. There's no creepy guy, you know, like a gimp mask or something like walking up behind him. Um, I was really nervous about that, but thank God. Yeah. And I mean, after... After Chris gets knocked out, you know, we, we transition a bit more to Rod. We, you know, see that he's, he keeps calling. He knows something's wrong. Uh, he looks up Andre Hayworth and discovers that, you know, this guy has been missing for months, you know, and he, he knows there's really something going on here. Uh, so he's going to have to go to the police about it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we see Chris, you know, waking up tied to a chair, you know, with these, these tight leather straps. And uh, he, they, they play this tape for him of, uh, Roman Armitage, who's the, the, you know, the dad of 
uh, Bradley Whitford's character, who is discussing the coagula, you know, this this process they're going to do to allow people to to live forever. It's a very like cult feeling, but you know, he's he's transferring people's um, you know brains over to to other bodies which we'll get a, a, a deeper explanation of when we come back to that. You know, they, they knock Chris out again with the image of the uh, teacup on the screen. And then we get, we get maybe like the best cop bit part I've seen in, in any movie recently, which is uh, Detective Latoya, who's played by Erica Alexander, who's Max from Living Single. <laughs> oh, good. Like, I was like, hey, Max is here. Um, Max is going to solve this problem. Of course, she's not. Because everything Rod says sounds as crazy as it is. And like... Rod Rod himself is the closest thing we get to an effective law enforcement agent in any of these horror movies that we've seen. (laughs) If he just stopped storing a sex slave, I think he would have had her (laughs) on on his side. And yet you look at you know what happens to uh to andre how he's like taken over by uh that that old dude and then has to be with that dude's like wife that's 30 years older than him we know he's still seeing and hearing Mm -hmm. all that like to Mm -hmm. a very real degree there's also like horrible sex crimes happening detective latoya's response is to go get two other cops to very seriously listen to what rod is saying and then they all just laugh him out of the place. And, you know, Rod finally decides he's going to call Chris's phone again. And this time Rose picks up. And this is what you guys were talking about, about like, she, we hear Rose's voice and she sounds so concerned about Chris. Where is Chris? What's going on with Chris? And, um, you know, it transitions to us actually seeing Rose, just this very blank, cold stare. And uh, she starts like, saying the the reason that rod is accusing her of all these things is because like he was always jealous and he always wanted to be with her <laughs> luckily rod is not dumb enough to fall for this because rod is like ah she's evil she's <laughs> she's evil <laughs> that bitch um, is lying she's lying she's lying <laughs> i was like wow uh, I did laugh. I literally, I literally audibly laughed out loud. It was sort of like a, a stress relief for me in the whole movie. I was like, uh, all right. I, I actually laughed. I could, I could unclench. I'm not going to stroke out any minute now. <laughs> yeah. So we, we get back to Chris. We discover that uh, he's been, you know, uh, part, part of his stress when he's not smoking is he scratches at things. He's been scratching at this chair while he's sleeping. He's starting to tear up the arm of it. And, uh, you know, he, he, the TV turns back on, and this time it's Jim Hudson, who is, you know, being prepped for surgery on the other side of the, the thing. And he, he says, you know, the procedure goes better when everybody understands what's going on. He and Chris have a conversation about the fact that uh, Chris's brain is going to be, or Jim's brain is going to be transplanted into Chris's body. Chris asks why Black people. And Jim goes through this this list of reasons why some of the other people are into it. They want to be stronger, faster, cooler, but specifically for Jim, it is personal to Chris. He, he wants Chris's eye for, for photography. Um, and that's why he was willing to, to pay so much to do this. Yeah. And this, I, I don't know. What do you guys think about this, this scene with Steven Root here? I can't tell how much of it is him justifying it to Chris or justifying it to himself. Like I'm not like those other ones. Those other ones, 
have this, you know, fetish for your physicality. And for me, that's not it. It has nothing to do with your blackness. It's just your creative item. Like you, you get how that's still messed up, right? Like you hear what you're saying. <laughs> I, I mean, it's so racist to me to say that like his identity can be separated from his art. Right. But I mean, I think there, I, I'm sure this is Peel's commentary, but there's surely people that believe that like oh like i could rap like you i could you know to make me, art like you i just it, need to do have what you have like it feels like the people that you know put almost put like a blind faith that like a meritocracy exists but like without acknowledging any of just how the racial components that goes into all of this into who gets to have galleries and I've it's lost the, the train. I've lost my train. Yeah. Of like, like the nineties and early two thousands. Like I don't see you as a black person. I just see you as a human. Like it, you're just literal, an artist to me. Yeah. The literal blind person saying like, essentially being like, I don't see color. Well, <laughs> like, great. You cannot see it. That doesn't mean it's not fucking there. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think what works about this is that, um, it, it's a good illustration of, uh, of a, of a white person, uh, telling a black person the exact kind of racial violence they're about to impart on them and there's nothing you can fucking do about it. Um, yeah, I was trying so hard not to reference this. I was kind of getting at it earlier, but if we go back to Central Park last year, <clears throat> um, I forget this woman's name, uh, you know, the Central Park time, but she's basically like, I'm going to uh, call the police and tell them that a black man is attacking me. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of shit that people get away with all the time. Like, you know, I know I can tell you what's about to happen to you, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. No, she even does the Rose thing of, like, playing up the panic in her voice when she calls. Like, it's it's yeah, yeah. completely horrific. It's awful. <laughs> um, yeah, and they, uh, so at the end of this conversation, you know, he, he says he's done. The, the picture of the, you know, of the uh, teacup comes back on, and clicks it and he uh you know falls over uh as if knocked out and we see that the we've seen bradley whitford preparing to do this surgery um on the back end and they finally send jeremy over to to get chris you know he's knocked out now he shouldn't be a problem he he un unstraps chris and it turns out that chris is not knocked out that chris has in fact picked the cotton out of the the chair of the arm and stuffed it in his ears to keep from hearing the sound of the cup and uh so has has successfully you know saved himself here and he grabs grabs a bocce ball of all things and uh smashes jeremy over the head with the thing and he does smash him a second time but this is definitely one of those like horror movie moments where i'm like just smash him a few more times just make like mega ultra sure yeah. The cool of blood is building up around his head, so I'm like, okay, he's clearly dead. That's normally like That's the international <laughs> film symbol for like dead. <laughs> yeah, pool of blood means dead. Yeah, and so no pool of blood, unconscious. Pool of blood and eyes open, fucking dead. Exactly. Yeah. So in in reading about this movie and and looking at all the various like bits and pieces that people had as, as Easter eggs and things in here. One of the things that comes up a lot is that Chris saves himself by picking cotton. Mm -hmm. um, and that he, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I never picked up on that. And that he then, shortly after this, will use uh, the head of a, a buck 
mm-hmm. to uh, stab to stab uh, Bradley Whitford's character to death. Um, well, that one is is that one an Easter egg or stabbing you yeah. throat with? It yeah, that that's right. Cool. I, I, I don't uh, know who, uh, wants, who wants to explain bucks and. The, I mean, it, well, I guess yeah. I guess if you don't know, I guess that is an Easter. I guess that is something to learn if you don't know that whole. I like that we're all talking around it, and none of us <laughs> wants to be the one to explain it. I'm too <laughs> late to talk about it directly. <laughs> I know my play. I know. Uh, so I talk about the Jewish and the genderqueer stuff for various reasons. Buck was a term that was associated with black men, specifically like strong will say virile black men and there's a certain symbology there in being killed by one <laughs> penetrated one might say yep he said it yep <laughs> thank you yeah and then this this is also an interesting tie back to this uh first conversation he had with bradley whitford earlier where they talk about hitting the deer and bradley whitford says like one down 99 to go as far as i'm concerned and you know he he thinks they'd be better off if they just killed all the bucks um, out there. And this is has a really uncomfortable tie back to, to that. Well, then also the creepy conversation where the lady's like grabbing his bicep and is like, is it true? Is it true? I'm like, oh, damn, she really, she She's really just went straight going there. there. Yeah, she went straight there. I'm like, just ask him to whip it out. Why don't you? What's, what's happening? She wants to know the product she's buying. That's fair. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I did have the thing where I'm like, again on the rewatch with the when Bradley Woodford has this whole speech about deer. I was like, I know this is all just racist symbolism, but damn it, if you want to solve the deer problem, be willing to introduce wolves back into the ecosystem. <laughs> if you don't want wolves around, then quit bitching about the deer. And you know that once again made me think back to an experience because every couple of years they do that whole deer eradication thing nearby me <laughs> Rock Creek Park. So I'm like, damn it, now I'm never gonna get that the same way again. It's racist that you guys are killing these deer. <laughs> exactly. I don't understand how that's racist. Gonna organize a march. Like save the deer. Reintroduce wolves. That's what they did at Yellowstone and it made everything better. Or <laughs> wolves. Uh so yeah, Chris stabs Bradley Whitford. Uh seems to unintentionally start a fire at this point. Uh, but starts fire nonetheless. Um, goes upstairs, uh, encounters the mom from across a room, and the teacup is sitting in the middle of the room between them. And uh, she she runs to try and grab it, and he smashes it. And then she stabs him in the hand, like she tries to stab him, and he catches it with his hand, and it sort of stabs through his palm. And then like he literally turns her own weapon on her and stabs her in the face with it. And then Jeremy's back. <laughs> Fucking Jeremy's here again. Um, and you know, puts him in a headlock, and Chris, you know, keeps trying to go for the door. And every time Chris opens the door, Jeremy kicks the door closed. And uh, happens... that moment's so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> it happened several times, and finally, like it seems like it seems like Chris is going down, and he goes for the door one more time, and Jeremy kicks it, and he Chris is two steps ahead, like you know, like Jeremy said earlier and stabs that knife right in his leg and uh and turns around and and beats the shit out of him incredibly satisfying he makes sure that he's he's dead this time but did we talk about uh him absolutely tanking that letter opener to the hand yeah yeah he god it's so good and also just the expression that he has while it happens is 
unbelievable. <laughs> it was almost like he's saying, this is the least of my problems right now. <laughs> just, just, just a nope. Exactly. Oh, I have a litter opener. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's like, I'll be using this now. Yeah, so he he, he kicks Jeremy to death. Um, and, and takes Have you ever up. been so done with a day that you don't even react to a letter opener in the hand? Yes. Cut to Rose upstairs looking at NBA prospects on her laptop, but yeah, that was <laughs> that was problematic as well. This whole While scene. Eating the segregated Fruit Loops, or <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> eating Fruit Loops and milk separately. That well, is. They're separate but equal. It's, it's fine. They're both in bowls. The worst like, thing she does in this yeah. whole movie. Oh my god! It's like, what's our? Is there any circumstance where dry cereal is okay? I say, as someone yes. who, when when they've been out of milk, has just resorted to shoving handfuls of cinnamon toast crunch in their mouth. I just well, and so much of it too. It's not just like the obvious symbolism. It's it's also adding to her identity as a person that is clearly not right. Like. It's like, you know, if you take a bite of a Kit Kat without breaking them in half, or like, it's one of those things just like, that's not, you know, that's not how we do that, right? Like, that, that's not how people eat cereal. <laughs> I like the that idea is... that biting across a full Kit Kat without, you know, snapping the pieces off. Is, that's is so sure upsetting. It's destroying black bodies, Jeremy. That's so <laughs> Fucking go up to someone <laughs> like in the airport, just take out a Kit Kat and just bite it across. That person on that flight, that person's going right the fuck <laughs> No flies That person's just being like, nope, no nope, I'm open right the fuck out of this airport. I will fly a different day. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> we gotta we gotta work that into something now. Biting across a Kit Kat is is the worst possible thing a person could do. He's unstable. If I'm like, if someone, if I'm taken prisoner, and I think like maybe they're trying to ransom me, someone comes in, bites a Kit Kat all the way across all four bars. I was like, oh, I'm not making it out alive. There's no ran- <laughs> there is no ransom being asked for here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the equivalent of starting. Just starting telling a story about doing a thing that has nothing to do with what's actually happening in a in any kind of suspense movie. Absolutely. Dude just starts telling a telling a, a story all about how how to garden roses in the middle of a like samurai movie. It's like, oh no, that guy's that guy's a fucking maniac. Oh my god, that was like, oh shit, this is go- this shit's gonna go real reservoir dogs real fast. Yeah, and meanwhile, she's also listening to the Dirty Dancing soundtrack while while she's doing this, which is just, the whole thing is just wrong. Um, Looking up um, uh, NCAA uh, prospectives. Yeah. Our next target. What, what always got me was like the, the, the kind of innocence because you have like Teddy there in the background. She's eating very clearly. I don't know just what it means in terms of, uh, you know, the colors and all that. It's like, it's so... I, I, I don't know what it is about having a, a children's themes in horror movies. That's just always so unsettling. Uh, it's like like a guaranteed scare. What I first know, what I noticed for the first time on this rewatch was behind her, above the bed, the picture, the framed pictures of like yeah, oh, it's a whole ritual. Like oh, it's such like I don't know. It's like combination notch on the bedpost slash like serial killer trophy like yeah oh yeah and the great thing about that scene is that i i, I think that one just 
came down to the wire. They like they were debating it, and it was never in the original script and all that. And and I think it's like one of the most standout creepiest scenes in the movie. Oh yeah, I'm so glad they kept it. It it really sets up what's about to come for her fantastically because yeah, I mean you have to you have to feel that Rose isn't just doing this because you know her parents or Jeremy are are pushing her along to be part of it. That you know she is doing it gladly and even giddily for for it to to really have the weight it does. Uh, and Chris, for his part, is nearly out. He steals Jeremy's car uh, with its with its uh, helmet in it and everything and, you know, takes off. He's nearly out when Georgina jumps in front of the car and, uh, and he, he hits her with the car. He's still past her, but she's lying on the ground behind the car. And he, <laughs> he remembers his mom and he can't leave her there. Um, you know, this, this woman has clearly been a victim as well. He knows um, he shouldn't, but yeah. trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he goes back and picks her up and puts her in the car. And this, this is uh, where Rose pops out the door with her rifle, shoot, uh, shooting at uh, the car, shooting at Chris, and then uh, says that, uh, get him grandpa, as the, uh, the, the grandpa goes running by her. We also find out that Georgina is the grandmother as she attacks Chris and causes him to crash the car. You know, Chris wakes up presumably seconds later to, you know, her, her out there with the rifle and to uh, Walter, who's the, the grandpa running up to attack him, you know, and Georgina clearly dead next to him. And you can see that her wig was covering her scar, whereas she's, you know, also had her, her brain transplanted. Walter tackles Chris and Chris uses his, his camera phone to save his life. He, you know, flashes the grandpa with the... Uh, the flash like he did to Logan earlier and you know the the actual guy in there Walter re- retains enough of or is, is able to get in control enough to take the rifle from Rose and first shoot her and then shoot himself which like h- how did you guys feel about this whole bit here huh. well I will say that I did have one of those sort of movie uh scenes f- flashback things where like when you have that one last clue that clicks everything into place it starts playing in your head and i'm like okay well now this makes sense this makes it when she says get him grandpa i'm like okay now this i always say it's like the last five minutes to murder she wrote when you realize that she figured the whole mystery out and you're like oh okay now it all makes sense all the things are playing back in your head so to put it put a lot of that that whole seed into context and i get what he was doing um because i I had some questions after that because I was sort of like, all right, well, there is no other option. You you certainly can't not shoot yourself or kill yourself because there's no cure for this. There's you're you're not because my question is for Chris, is he gonna pass out every time he throws a sink into the spoon now? A spoon into the sink now, or what <laughs> what happens? Is you know, is he ever gonna be cured? You know, and then Andre is is over there getting banged out by an old lady and then and, and, and all these you know loose ends so I, I sort of did feel like okay well at one point i was like okay well they're gonna ride off into the sunset together and then i immediately thought there's no way that they can ride off to the sunset together because that that personality is is still down there no matter what it's gonna come back out so yeah it was it was sad but i kind of got it um yeah no, it's like the whole killmonger thing right the whole they you choose 
dying in free or living in captivity. Like he would rather, you know, this is the final choice I have as a person with agency. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, let myself be captured again. Like, Yeah. And it, it puts together all those pieces of like, okay yeah walter is the dad which is why he knows everybody at the party and greets them because they're his friends it's his party uh which is why he is out running in the dark because he's a racer you know he raced against jesse owens and he's still trying to you know trying to beat him he's still trying to be as, as good as he wanted to be um you know which is is part of also you know why he's chosen this body because you know he he thinks that he'll be faster if he is a a black man, um, <laughs> black man. <laughs> you know. So it, it puts those pieces in, and it adds all these like bits to you know. You start to figure out what's what's going on with Georgina. You know, there's literally a scene earlier where like they're showing uh, they're showing off the kitchen, and they're talking about how it's the mom's kitchen, and you know they really left a part of her here. And like, as they're saying that Georgina sort of pops into the picture and like, she literally is, you know, a, a piece of the mother. Um, and it's all sort of all these, all this stuff. It's so tight. Like everything is, everything means something. Everything's tied together, which is, is so unusual. I feel like with a lot of the horror movies that we've talked about that we've been like, well, it was a good shot, but it didn't actually make sense. Um, then I also um, had to ask myself, Okay, so you saved your parents, you brought them back, and then you make them your servants? Well, I interpreted that that was like a bit of play acting just for that weekend right. while Chris was there. And yeah, that's otherwise my interpretation just, too. Otherwise, okay, just the grandpa cutting wood and running around <laughs> just to be like, look at me with my running legs and my wood cutting arms. <laughs> I know. I yeah, that it's all that the whole, whole duality thing they played out throughout the entire film. They're all play acting the whole time. So yeah, all the all that's left is is Chris and the at this point shot Rose. Chris is is going to is, is coming to Rose. Rose is like telling him they can be together, trying to pretend to be this you know version of his uh, of her that was his girlfriend. Uh, and he starts to choke her, and um, she just gives him this like this stone face of like you know he he she's not even gonna give him the satisfaction of uh you know begging or or whatever um and he he still can't do it he can't choke her out um is it that he can't do it or is it that she gets way too into it and then he doesn't smile is a little unsettling because he doesn't stop until she is very explicitly like joker smiling yeah and is it because she saw the lights or is it just she was really just sort of getting getting off on the whole thing i took it more as like a mocking smile of like you're doing this but like i'm not afraid like this isn't yeah this isn't concerning to me well then also i'm thinking to myself well okay i was waiting for the the post-credit scene to show him being yanked off to death row because clearly his dna and, and everything is all over the house he's killed a house for, you know from an evidence perspective he's killed a house full of white people there's no way he's going to live through this well it's we do see that house that that. original ending we start st- that house starts to catch on fire so that's going to be all like all of the evidence in the house is going to be all burnt up pretty soon but also but like the original, original ending, ending yeah. no, uh, 
Oh, was that the original ending with like just yeah, like, yeah. Chris was in our prison, and and Rod visits him, and and Rod. It, it, there's some hint about going after the rest of the cult or whatever. Um, but that was it. That's that. That's what the ending was. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's no other option. I mean, let's be real. There's no other option. There's no way this guy was going to come out of that, you know, alive. Um, it, because, again. You got the dead body on the road with the shotgun with, you know, your prints on. You got your blood, your blood and their blood all mixed up all over the place. There's just too many things. There's just too many things. There's no possible way he was going to come out of that one alive. So the the idea of them riding off into the sunset, I was like, nope, I, I get it. You're T mother, T.S. motherfucking A, but still. <laughs> I love that you can accept the like body snatching white cult, but you're like, black guy wins. <laughs> That's no, nope. let's be serious. Like, nope. This like, is not a fantasy movie. Nobody's really knows that they're there and maybe local detectives are really shitty and are just gonna look at like see like grandpa body snatcher and just be like, oh that guy went crazy and killed the whole family he worked for. But he called 911 and gave him nope. his name. Oh yeah, shit. Well, he did. No, he's fucked. But see, I wonder too. Um, it goes back to what we were saying, but like the ending that we did get is, um, um, it, it, I like the twist that it is like the that it is a TS motherfucking and because we do think it's the cops and we do think that he's done for it because if the cops see him on top of a bloody white woman choke him out, they're going to pull their guns and he's going to be done, uh, one way or the other. But uh, no, it turns out it was uh, his conspiracy theorist spent the whole time with the gears turning behind his head, and and we weren't seeing uh, police cruiser lights; we were seeing PSA lights, uh, and and I think I, I feel like that's very, that's a lot more rewarding than the other ending we got because uh, you know part of it is that it's um, is that a lot of the film is like very comedic, like the the moment the fruit moves the auction. I'd have voted for Obama a third time. That stuff, um, as disconcerting as it all is, you can also play it for comedy. And I, I, I feel like seeing yet another black man go to prison, no matter how justified or not, would have just been too depressing to go out on. It would have been a real downer of a note. Yeah, no, and Jordan Peele has said, like, in the time between he wrote the movie and when they started making the movie is when a lot of the you know Black Lives Matter stuff started happening, when... Uh, a lot of these these protests started coming together, and uh, the, you know the the idea of you know ending another movie basically the way Night of the Living Dead ends, um, you know with this uh, you know black man getting killed despite being the hero. Um, he's like, uh, you know, black people don't just don't need to see another you know black guy die on screen. Um, they see enough of that anyway. Um, you know, and he he decided to sort of give this twist because he's like, you know, it's, it's it's interesting because I feel like a white audience is going to see the the police lights and be like, oh, he's saved. Nope. And he's like, I, I know a black audience is not going to see that. Nope. Um, you're going to see those police lights and be like, oh, shit. Did he- anyone learn, though, from this scene for the first time that the TSA has cars? <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I assume they do. The TSA, I'm sure, has all sorts of things they have no real use for. Because, because of not. I think they had like this, the carts that like go through the airport real fast to like help old people. But not the carts. <laughs> I mean, it's not as triumphant if he shows up in a golf cart. No, no. The other, could... A little bit of the effect is lost. 
I've been I mean, talking I, my I, notes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just kind of assumed they had, again, for the same reason, they're like a subset of the Department of Homeland Security. They have a bunch of stuff to show off, whatever. And, uh, uh, and here we saw it in this film. Yeah, I mean, say, if he's I'm at JFK or Newark, then, you know, you got to have a car to get from one terminal to another out there anyway. So that, That's true. It was frustrating because I put it in my nose. I'm like, this chick went full on Karen <laughs> right at the very last minute. Like she, she just knew. And that's why I thought she had that smile on her face. Like she's looking at him like, yeah, you're dead now. Because all yeah. I have to do is yeah. lean to the side and say, help me. And then there's going to be a bullet in your head. So that's why I was like, yep, he's done. He's done. And I literally, I, I think I almost cheered when, <laughs> when I got out of the car. I'm like, yeah, he may live. Well, until he's convicted and then goes to the chair. But he may live, you know, at least for a little while and exhaust all the appeals and all that stuff. But, you know, we'll have extra time. Yeah. And uh, this, I love that this movie literally ends with uh, Rod, like he keeps looking at him and he keeps like thinking about saying something finally he says i mean i told you not to go in the house <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the end line is one of my favorite final lines in any movie yeah and i i think that's what chaps it also that's why I, I think this ending is a lot better than anything else because the house is punishment enough with yeah. everything he's fucking been through he doesn't need more the <laughs> he just needs one more i told you so and, and T.S. motherfucking A, we handle shit. That's what we do. Consider the situation fucking handled. So That's the was, line of the movie. So was I the only one that saw the symbolism now of Grandpa chasing uh, Chris uh, as sort of making up for his loss to Jesse Owens? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I, was, I was watching an interview with Jordan Peele where he was answering a bunch of like, fan theory things and he said like in a version of the script there was a line where that character says i finally got you jesse when he gets him down <laughs> and he was like i just felt like that was too over the top i just had to cut that line i think the symbolism was there i'm sort of like yeah, yeah i think that, like that line oh yeah, sorry i think actually including that line would have been maybe a, a little too on the nose yeah, I, I do recommend checking out that interview. It's a uh, it's a thing he did with Vanity Fair where they had him answering like fan theories online. It's on it's on YouTube. Yeah, so. it's pretty hilarious <laughs> because there's also a fan theory that uh, all of this happened in Rod's head that none of it's real. This is all a fantasy he had of what happened to Chris when Chris went up to this girl's house. <laughs> and and Jordan said that uh, that absolutely is not the case. Somebody's been smoking some good weed and. <laughs> That like this really happened. There's no point in it if it didn't happen. I um, like someone. I remember from part of that interview, someone asked him because at one point, what they tell him uh, not to go in the basement because there's black mold down there, and they asked him and asked Rampeel if that was any symbolism, and he was just like, "No, but if you want to pretend there's symbolism there, I'll say I came up with it." <laughs> yeah, <that's... laughs> yeah, they they said yeah, it's a they were black bodies that they were using as a mold for for this thing that's like the idea of what black mold meant and he's like yeah i definitely definitely meant all of that like <laughs> <laughs> clearly clearly he did not so that's i mean that's the end of the movie there's no no post credits or anything like that um they drive off into the the darkness together 
him and Rod. So I guess uh, if we if we look at our questions here, I want to break down sort of how this uh, weighs up with our, our progressive questions. Uh, the first one I think is a, a little bit difficult to say. It's, you know, do we feel like this movie deals with mental illness or mental health or physical disability in any real meaningful way? I mean, we have a blind person who is just a body stealing asshole. Well, and one of its core plot points is like the effect of trauma. Like so many of the decisions... And so many of the ways in which Chris is preyed upon is because of his trauma. Absolutely. Which is just so hard, which is just so hard and painful to see every time. Because, God, that trauma just feels so real. Like the scene, like at the lake where he's like telling the story to Rose is just so heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it does a much better job dealing with like stress and trauma than it does with any kind of physical disability. Because... Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, we have Stephen Root playing, you know, this, this blind character who is uh, essentially defined by his blindness um, because that's why he's there. It's why he's going to pay whatever massive amount of money he's paying for Chris's body. Um, so it's, it's not really, that's not really addressed in a positive way other than him being generally an amiable character, except for the horribleness except for being willing to pay for somebody's body he's, he's definitely the easiest to like of that group of people but yeah the the dealing with trauma and I, I think and everything in there is is really important and really interesting and something that i think we see a lot from final girls and, and female characters in horror stories that we don't get a lot with male characters and especially not you know male characters of color i think it's it's very rare for you know a, a character who uh looks like Daniel Kaluuya to have this sort of uh, this sort of backstory and this sort of like trauma and anguish beyond you know with what's visible about him. It's interesting from a casting perspective. I would have thought that Lakeith Stanfield would have had the the Chris role um, normally. I think because he would. How do I want to put it? The darker skinned character probably would have been given a lead role, and I thought that was actually a really great, you know. Uh, way of pushing that character forward in this movie. Um, I don't know, I think, um, I, I know it's gonna sound repetitive, but I think that you know, having watched the whole film again, having watched the whole film and then sort of putting in the context of the mental illness and then putting in the context of what I was saying earlier, the, the vulnerability, I think there were so many different things that absent of that vulnerability, absent of that trauma, and absent of the racial norms, societal norms, he may not have been as vulnerable a character in this circumstance and may not have been, you know, um, as easy prey. Um, and may not have been as susceptible to the, the, you know, the hypnosis, may not have been susceptible. I think that was all those, char- those, those, those characteristics, you know, in the end, it, it became clear, at least in my head, because... I made it part of the movie in my head. In the end, it became clear that those things were part of a checklist, you know, that they were putting together, that they had used to make sure they found the most vulnerable, um, but highest value specimen to, to put on the market and sell. So I think mental illness was actually seen as a, I don't know how to say it. I think it was seen as a, as a, a mental disability and a weakness and a vulnerability that made them easier prey. Um, if that makes any sense. And I don't know how I felt about that, you know, in the end of it, but I saw how it played into the, its role in the film. Uh, anybody else have anything they want to say on that one? Or should we should go on to the next point? All right. The next point. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as my cue to move on to uh, 
how how does the movie deal in any way with lgbtqia plus people or does it there's implications that rose is bi in which case she would fall firmly into predatory by uh cliches and stereotypes and badness so let's just move on <laughs> like i was wondering i mean I don't know. I, I don't know if this is... Is she performing it because they need Georgina? Very that. Yeah. Honestly, beyond just like the first... There's really nothing even strictly to imply like necessarily that it was a sexual relationship that could have been like, oh, I'm inviting like my close friend I've made up to like the weekend. Right. Like, mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, there's by implications, but there is nothing strictly explicit. I yeah, she's a full blown predator. That's all. Yeah, it's like either way, she is just a predator. Yeah, I, I think there's there's nothing to say that that's not her. You know, that Georgina was originally her roommate or something in this story. You know, the the picture she's just sort of leaning on her playfully. So it could be more than that. It could not. But <laughs> I think, like uh, we've said before, actually, it's better representation if she's not. Yeah, I'd I'd rather she not be queer because otherwise, it's just. Yeah, she's the predatory bi, which we don't need any more of that. Well, that does sort of lead into this, uh, the question of whether or not this movie is feminist. How do we feel about that? I think the way it handles masculinity, especially on Chris's part, is progressive. But all of its non-male characters are predatory and awful. And it seems to be in many ways tied to their gender. Like if you look at how... Uh, Rose and her mother play this game. It's a much more subtle one. It's a much more, you can't trust what they're telling you at face value, whereas the dad is very obvious in his racism and the brother is even more so. Like, so I don't, I don't think I would say that. I mean, our best woman character in the movie is Detective Latoya, who's only willfully not good at her job. Yeah. I, I would say, it, I, I would argue that it is actually feminist especially because um you know if you listen to uh angela davis there's, there's, a, there's a there's a point in the prison reform movement that says uh part of feminism is making sure that we have less uh you know black men dead and in jail because you know not only are they uh husbands and sons and brothers and all that but uh, they also have a role to perform in our community that then also takes the pressure off of uh, black women and and people who are otherwise kind of left alone. And 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 I've lived a life story that's very much like that in terms of growing up in what was essentially a single parent household for six years of my life because my dad was in jail. So coming out, I, I think, in reaction to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement with that alternate ending in which he does not end up in prison, in which he is the winner and the survivor, and he is now allowed to go back into the black community. And look, that's a re- that's reading a lot into it, and that's like kind of extrapolating a bit into there. But I think just because it has kind of the absence of certain things doesn't mean that it it in itself uh, cannot be feminist. Yeah, I, I think it sits at a very interesting intersection of race and gender, which is it does very specifically address the the ideas of you know white woman tears like uh, of you know these these white women who are presenting themselves as victims in this story um, or who are making themselves to uh, seem helpless 
in order to, you know, disadvantage this, this black man, you know, which is, is in no way like a not real thing. You know, it, it's been, especially, you know, in the, the circumstance you brought up earlier, it has been very definitely proven that it is real. Now, the fact that a hundred percent of the, uh, the women who are not brain snatched are evil is maybe, uh, maybe not a point in its favor. But I do think that the fact that you have a, a male character and, uh, you know, specifically a, a black male character who is able to, uh, to have a story in his life about trauma, who is able to have feelings, who is able to cry, who is able to not be toxically masculine in this story is in itself, you know, feminist because part of feminism is everybody being able to distance themselves from that toxic masculinity, everybody being able to feel and, and have feelings, express those feelings. And that is, that is important. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's, it's a really difficult balancing act that this movie would have to pull to be explicitly feminist while a hundred percent of its female characters are evil. But I think it does that as best as it's able to, you know, with, with telling the story that it's telling. But feminist adjacent. It's it's not actively non-feminist, which is you know, uh, for for horror movies sometimes an accomplishment. No, it definitely is. We can't say that about all the movies we've done. And like we said, there's no sexual assaults in this movie. Yay! Um, for some reason that just has to be part of like seventy five percent of horror movies. I mean, that's worth celebrating in every horror movie because it it happens enough that we're still commenting on it. Yeah, so the the last two questions I think go hand in hand, which is uh, how does the movie deal with race and how does it deal with class? You know, and, and certainly we see an intersection of those two, in that you know Chris is is himself an orphan, doesn't really have a family, doesn't have people to depend on, and is sort of at the mercy of these rich white folk in this story, which is you know both tied to to his race and his class, which are also of course, tied in inextricable ways. Um, how, I mean, what what would you guys like to say on this topic? I've well, never I seen mean, um, race and class as uh, explicitly separate to begin with. I think they've always gone hand in hand, especially in, in the United States of America. And that's like kind of an important distinction to point out because a lot of where that racism comes from is indeed a place of uh, class and being, and, you know, Othering is a tool of basically <clears throat> the rich and telling one portion of the population that, you know, they're better than the other, even if their circumstances are exactly the same. And at the end of the day, you know, get out is foremost a criticism of like, you know, white liberalism and white liberalism is often a privilege of, uh, of the rich. Um, and, you know, I, I think all the other kind of obvious themes aside and, uh, and from like the obvious different tax brackets that the characters in this movie come from, um, it, it's it would be kind of impossible to to tell the story of Get Out, which is like the story of uh, the American um, black man and how he engages with that portion of uh, a society if it didn't exist in the first place. So I mean, I, I feel like the biggest symbol to me out of this whole movie is that this is this is literal human gentrification. I mean, this is exactly what this is. This is a white person moving into a black 
person and increasing the value of it (laughs) so so from that perspective i you know my first thought is this absolutely speaks up and that you know coupled with the characterization of each of these you know this armistice family who felt and, and all of their guests who felt absolutely justified absolutely justify it and in no way gave any value to these African-American people who they, whose lives they took over. And, and even as, and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the gentleman's name, the one that was about to have the surgery. The fact that he explained the process to Chris and, and, and so meticulously detailed how he was simply gonna just exist in the background while I'm gonna be in charge and I'm gonna take over. That's literally every neighborhood right now that's in, in the District of Columbia that, that used to be run down that is now, you know, unaffordable to most of his previous residents. And it was that symbolism for me was just sort of, it was stark right there, like in your face. Like this is, it says, I mean, the line with your natural gifts, you know, an hour, whatever it was that he, you know, he said, it, it all just sort of lined up to me. It's like, okay, well, we have these things you want these things. And so instead of working for these things, you're just going to take these things, you know, you know, from us. So, uh, I mean, I feel like it pulls up, puts a big bullseye, like right on you and says, if you don't quite get the point that I'm making here about race and class, then you need to watch the movie three or four more times just to make sure it smacks home, you know, for you. Um, it's, 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 it's the definition of, of, of gentrification and, and I won't even say cultural appropriation, it's just physical appropriation altogether. So um, yeah, that, that it, it was when all that, as I'm going through the film, I didn't pick all that up right away. At the end, when it was all nicely tied up and in a bow, that's kind of when it, it hit me and I'm sort of thinking about it. And actually it, it was probably later when I'm sort of laying in bed bug-eyed because I was trying to decompress from having watched the film. Um, it, it, those pieces started to fall into place for me. So yeah, um, it, 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 it makes a point. That's for, that's for damn sure. It makes a point. And that point is very clear. Do we know that Chris makes his money off of his art? Like, does he have any, because we see that it's Rod like goes a- to work. That looks like a nice sized apartment for that's someone to live it off of on just photography. And so what I was thinking when she was looking at the NBA prospects, right, is like, you can't do this to LeBron, right? Like his name's too big, but someone who's up and coming, you could maybe achieve that with, like, or at least it's aspirational. I was wondering how much of a big deal is Chris that he can afford a nice New York apartment on his art and art alone, but also isn't so well known that he'll, if he goes missing, it's not a big deal. Like. They even mention Lakeith, like Lakeith Stanfield's character. The articles about his experience are always like up and coming jazz musician. Right, up and it's coming. Like, yeah, it's like eventually someone's going to realize that these fairly high profile people are disappearing, and the same fucking white woman appears starts appearing in all their <laughs> Instagram feeds like four months before they disappear. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I I, I think. The opposite is true, but it's exactly because of um, of the race. It's like even it, it, look at what happened over the summer with uh, with Black Lives Matter and what happened on Twitter, and everyone is now sharing all this black art, right? And now everyone cares, and now everyone's like, "Oh, did you hear about this amazing artist and this amazing poet?" And if you're 
tapped into that world, then you kind of know that stuff. But for a lot of the general population, they're not going to look into it. And look at what happens um, when A-list black celebrities interact with police officers and are still arrested in their own homes or stopped for driving nice cars. It's, uh, uh, it, 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 it's not quite an invisible population, like if you're talking about uh, indigenous peoples or something, but it's, uh, it's very much a second-class citizenship and you really have to do a lot to get on that level. Um, but even, even going back to the uh, particular aspect of what Chris does in terms of his photography and his artwork, we have plenty of artists whose names that we know, whose faces that we've never seen. We have like uh, a Banksy, we have De La Vega, we have these like mysterious figures that, uh, again, you know, you know your artwork if you're, if you're looking uh, at it and if you're looking for it, but you don't necessarily know the person involved. I think it's a really good point, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, on the, the point about, you know, Lakeith Stanfield's character, uh, there there were people looking for him that, that know he's missing. I think there is, I think some of that is accounted for in the different ways in which they are taken and that, you know, he is literally pulled off the street by, you know, by Jeremy, whereas uh, Chris is very clearly targeted. You know, he is, uh, you know, they, they find somebody who doesn't have a family, who doesn't have, you know, people close to him. He, he tells her, he tells Rose that she's all he's got. Um, you know, you know, he's, he's got skill and he's got, um, these things, but he doesn't have people that would necessarily go looking for him. Uh, if, you know, he didn't pop up with the exception of Rod, who turns out to be, you know, a, a better friend than I guess they're prepared to, um, <laughs> to understand. Yeah. I mean, did anybody else have anything they wanted to, to say about this as far as the, what it says about race? And it's, I mean, uh, literally everything in the movie has something to say about race. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I feel like the last two two and a half hours just this movie's <laughs> relationship with race and class yeah absolutely um all right so uh just to start wrapping this up um uh, i feel like i already know the answer to this having talked to you guys but uh just to put it out there does everybody feel like uh this is a movie worth watching people should go check out absolutely uh, yeah definitely required viewing it's one it's of those one movies of... where even if you're not a horror fan you have to still have to watch this movie the first time I watched this movie, I was like, I want to teach this. And then we like persuaded the folks at governor school to let us teach it. Like it, it is that good. Yeah. That's awesome that you get, they get to teach it. That's so cool. Yeah. It is, it is so intricately made and everything, everything is done so well. And, and while it is, you know, science fiction conceit, it isn't, it isn't what these movies so often are, which is a metaphor that excludes the, affected people you know x-men is a metaphor about people of color that centers white people you know this is a movie about that is you know it is metaphorical because there aren't literally people out there that we know of stealing black people's bodies and putting their own brains in them but it's not that far off (laughs) as we pointed out um the apocalypse has begun. But again, even if there's that the metaphor around the sci-fi of like the body possession, that it is dealing directly with the racial realities and the actual races and dynamics of what we have. It doesn't try to put the races behind the metaphors that then don't hold up. The fact that when you are just going direct, you can 
really just speak more to those real lived in experiences rather than, you know, like they're mutants. No, real people can't shoot lasers out of their eyes, but don't worry about how that muddies the message. Like the message. So I don't know. I just value the sometimes just going direct with it. Yeah. And if comics gate has taught us anything, it's that people don't understand metaphors. <laughs> oh. they, they don't realize that the X-Men are metaphors for people of color or queer people or anything like that. They just think it's a cool thing to look at. <laughs> All right. Uh, Some of the writers don't though. realize that X-Men are people of color. <laughs> don't trigger me. Don't trigger the me right now. fine. I just don't want them in my backyard. Like <laughs> <laughs> The X-Men are fine as long as your daughter doesn't marry one, right? <laughs> I always love that they're supposed to be in like Westchester. Like, the fuck are the X-Men doing in Scarsdale? <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, Magneto's attacking White Plains again. <laughs> I guess they just figure you can't have that big ass hidden school in the middle of uh, the middle of the sitting. See, don't make me start schooling you all and telling you all that they're on their own island now. They all have their own island. So now they're perfectly fine as long as they stay there on their own island. <laughs> it's a living yeah. island. Their own country. I mean, they've had an asteroid before, you know, it didn't work out great that time either. Some of them were on the moon. <laughs> that's another there's some of them are still on the moon now i am enjoying um, this current era <laughs> <laughs> all right moving on from the x-men so ha- having enjoyed this movie everybody seems to have liked it uh what do we want to recommend for people jay do you have a recommendation for people to check out if they like this oh if they like get out do i have a recommendation that's a tough one come back to me <laughs> this is the hardest part in thinking about being on this podcast it's like i have to do recommendations they have to be good recommendations <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly the most, one of the most stressful well, the, thing, the thing is with the get out I'm not even sure I would recommend another movie it's like uh, just watch it again just watch it again yeah you should you should, you should go watch Step Up 2 that's, that's my recommendation <laughs> <laughs> it's got minorities in it give yourself a nice little palate cleanser <laughs> alright well Emmanuel since you said how stressful it is you want to go next absolutely uh, so I thought about this because I'm that kid that if something stresses me, I have to like prepare a week in advance. Um, my wife and I have been watching a Black Lady sketch show on HBO Max. It's uh, Quinta Brunson, Robin Thede, several other Black uh, comedians. And I realized that a lot of Black sketch comedy has explored these horrific ideas as though it's ha 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 funny. But really, though, um, I think you see that in a lot of Key and Peele's show. You see that in a lot of, um, if you ever watched Astronomy Club on Netflix, these are all Black sketch shows um several of the sketches that they do are little horror short stories where it's just like this is a thing that is a genuine black fear that we're playing for laughs but it's like a in-group laughter as opposed to out-group and so i think if you enjoyed this you would enjoy jordan peele's earlier work uh, but also you would enjoy more contemporary shows like astronomy club and a black lady sketch show and also the telltale game the walking dead uh, which is the point-and-click adventure where you are a black man in the zombie apocalypse and you team up with your best friend who is a country guy who has never really met a black person before. And that has some interesting racial dynamics. Uh, let's see. Uh, Aaron, what have you got? I was thinking about this, and it, it, you're right. It was absolutely difficult to to try to come up with a recommendation, but I started thinking about what what has sort of hit me with a similar, not exactly the same, but a similar sort of vibe. And the first thing that came to mind was Attack the Black, oh, um, which, which you know, has similar themes, um, 
you know, class and race, et cetera, um, in the UK. So yeah, that's kind of what, what popped up. I was gonna say my second was Muppets Take Manhattan, but that's just because I, I like the whole <laughs> palate cleanser idea of things because you need to de-stress after watching this movie. Yeah. But, no, Attack and the Block popped in my head. Attack the Block is great. And that's uh, when, when we're talking about doing fairly soon as well. I'm, okay. I'm excited about that. I love, I love Attack the Block. I love John Boyega specifically. Uh, all right, uh, Ben, what have you got? So not a palate cleanser. But if you want a good follow-up to get out, I'm going to recommend Sorry to Bother You. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and yeah, shares I'm a, an actor in common there <laughs> as well. So. Yeah. I still haven't seen Sorry to Bother You, but I have heard nothing Don't about it. Don't look up anything yeah. about Go it. Go into it blind. Just watch it. Uh, all right, that's awesome. So I, I've got a couple of things. I feel like the obvious recommendation here is Us, uh, which is Jordan Peele's other horror movie for which like the the main characters uh are Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke uh Lupita Nyong'o specifically is the the protagonist of this movie and the villain of this movie and deserved all the Oscars for it and didn't did not get nominated mm-hmm. for them she is amazing in this movie if you know even if it wasn't written by Jordan Peele and it wasn't extraordinarily well crafted if a bit shaggier than get out her performance alone is is amazing but yeah, it has a lot of the same sense of things being just slightly off that a lot of this movie does in, in ways that are just amazing. The other, another couple of big things um, that I, w- I wanted to mention, uh, we're going to have an episode about it. It's probably actually going to go up before Wait, hold this on. one. I haven't my recommendation yet. My real recommendation. Oh, no, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've got a couple more real quick here. Um, you do? Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're... Um, I was supposed to record the, ep- the an episode on thing I'm about to talk about already, uh, but it got delayed because of um, last week. Um, is is a movie called uh, Horror Noir? It's a documentary that follows sort of the history of of black people in uh, in horror movies, and it's it's really great and really well formatted and and super interesting. Um, it does sort of present this movie as black people winning horror, like period, like. This is the apex of it. Um, but it also does say like, oh, there's a lot of people coming up behind Jordan Peele that hopefully will be able to benefit from Get Out doing so well and being so amazing. Um, and one of the people who appears in that is uh, the professor Tanana Reeve Du, who is a teacher, I, I believe, um, at the, I believe it's UCLA, somewhere in California that teaches a class that is based around this movie uh, called the, the Sunken Place. Um, and it is about you know the the history of of black horror and is uh, is available for uh, a price. I don't I don't know exactly what it is online for you to you know basically take the online equivalent of this class if uh, if you're into get out enough that you want to check that out and see um, all of this stuff. But um, it's it sounds really exciting. It's just not something that I have the time and money to do. But if you do, it's definitely worth looking into. Jay, what do you got that isn't a step up to the streets? <laughs> they're they're all TV shows. So, um, well, not not all. One, one's a TV show, but you should probably read the book. And that one is uh, Lovecraft Country. I feel like that's really obvious. The the, the show there's a lot of weird things. I think the book is uh, probably the safer bet to go. Uh, with with definitely all the trigger warnings available, I would recommend Grand Army on Netflix because. I don't think I've watched 
I feel like that more speaks to growing up as a kid in New York City than that show. And, uh, you know, they have storylines following a, a few different races and cultures. And so you're going to find all of that in there. I feel like it's really underrated and it's going to be, and it's going to sound like the most uh, cliche uh, black man thing that I could possibly recommend. But there is uh, the new roots that came out a few years ago. Uh, yeah. That was also really good. And um, the last on my list, the last show on my list is Hatfields and McCoys because it's basically roots for white people. <laughs> <laughs> roots for white people. What- <laughs> It's what we're really missing. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank, uh, thank you. Those are all great suggestions, guys. Uh, before we wrap this up, I want to make sure that we uh, let people know where they can find you all and your work online. Uh, Jay, do you want to go ahead and uh, take that from there? Let people know where they can find you and, and learn more about what you're doing. Me, me. Uh, I, I have nothing right now. It's just nice to be included. <laughs> uh, do you have a? a a Twitter presence or something that people can uh, follow you at? I mean, you could follow at Cynical Angst if you want. Uh, that's something you could do. Um, I believe I have a website. It's www.networkj.com. But seriously, all my stuff needs updating. It's been like a slow year for film and all that. But if you want to request any of my work that's available, kind of uh, as for requested, it's all online. Uh, and if people want, they can get in touch with me at my um columbia email that's going to be jjj20 at columbia.edu uh there you go awesome uh aaron what about you oh you can find me on twitter at, at aaron j amos and uh, every wednesday morning rambling on about comics on the talking comics podcast fantastic and of course talking comics is, is highly recommended by the time you hear this you may have already listened to our blood and donuts <laughs> episode which had uh, bronwyn on there who was on uh, talking comics and ladies of Valhalla and also of course uh, Bob Ryer was on our Black Christmas episode so of course talking comics is great you should check that out and go check out those episodes if you haven't already and uh, Emmanuel where, where can people find you online um, I'm on Twitter at elipscom2 that's E-L-I-P-S-C-O-M-B and then the number two uh, it's mostly talking about English and dorky things it's my teacher Twitter but it's where I do everything from awesome and um, Ben, where can people find you online? You can find me at, uh, at Twitter at, at BenTheCon. You can find links to all of my works uh, at BenConComics.com. They're all also on Comixology. And my upcoming graphic novel, Renegade Rule, is available for pre-order. Fantastic. And uh, I, of course, am on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Uh, I am at jeremywhitley.com. My book, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, book two is coming out in June. Uh, you can pre-order it right now uh, wherever, wherever they take pre-orders for books. Raven the Pirate Princess book nine just came out, and uh, we're, we're wrapping up Marvel, con- or Marvel action chillers as we speak. So we should see, uh, should be able to find pre-order information for that online as well for the podcast progressively horrified is on patreon at patreon.com slash progressively horrified please support us if you can if you can't we totally understand because it's a horrible horrible world out there we're on twitter at prog horror pod you can follow us there that doesn't cost anything and our website is progressively horrified.transistor.fm if you would do us the great favor of subscribing rating and reviewing as many stars as possible we would really appreciate that. 
guys, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. I, I want to thank uh, Emmanuel, Aaron, Jay, and Ben. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Thank yeah, you. It was a blast. This is awesome. And yeah, thank you guys so much for coming. And uh, thanks to all of you who are, who are listening. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Progressively Horrifying is created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emmanuel Lipscomb, Aaron Amos, and Jay Joseph Jr. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinions of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Contact us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or email us at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com.